following announcement has been paid for by the WZWA Network. Hi, everybody. This is former WWE superstar Al Snow. And- CWN is Sean Oliver. My name is Eugene. And you are watching the Insider's Edge podcast. Now get on the train. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast here in conjunction with the WZWA Network. I am your host here today, California in Fury, coming off the heels of a great two and a half hour conversation we had with uh, Big Sal E. Graziano from ECW last night. We give him, you know, the, the biggest and most full shoot interview of his career that he's ever had. So you got to check that out. All that aside, I'm very excited here today and night because, you know, we're, we're talking across the planet here to my good friend. I can say that now. This is my good friend. He is former play-by-play announcer for World Championship Wrestling. He's also dabbled in the WWE and TNA. He is, without a doubt, one of my favorite commentators in the history of the wrestling business this is the one and only incomparable scott hudson scott how are you today first i was actually about to step out because i thought you were going to introduce tony shivani so as <laughs> soon you said my name i sat back down so i'm good carl great to hear from you looking forward to this me too, bro. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate your time. And a few weeks ago, you and I had, a, a, a I think, a three-hour conversation uh, over the phone, which was uh, certainly fun for me, uh, totally nerding out on all things that I don't think many other people would care about. But I wanted to know all the ins and outs of things. So I thank you for your time then and here today. My absolute pleasure. Anytime. So, Jack, would you like to take it away with our first round of questions for Scott? Of course, um, like with most interviews about people's careers, we always want to start uh, sort of at the beginning, uh, at the early life. Um, how did you become a wrestling fan? Uh, what, was, uh, what was wrestling uh, like in your childhood for you? Um, I am 55 years old, coming up on 56 years old. So I started in 1970 when I would have been five years old. Um, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, my dad's dad, um, was a huge fan of wrestling. And when we would go visit eh, a couple hours away, we would go eh, maybe a weekend every two months uh, to go visit him and my grandmother. And it was always the weekend. And he would always call me in and say, Scott, come back here and let's watch the wrestling, which was on uh, Channel 3 out of Columbus, Georgia, uh, live, believe it or not. And this was the early 70s still live or live wrestling on local television, not network or even a cable channel. It was just channel three uh, out of Columbus. And just one of those times it clicked and I became a fan right then and have been a fan ever since. So what is that? 50 years. So yeah, long time. Wow. That's a, that's a lot of time being a wrestling fan, man. You would have, uh, you've seen, you've watched it from, you know, the Hulk Hogan era through, you know, the, the 90s, the 90s boom, and, and then through the, uh, how it's modernized through the last 20 years. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I had a, a friend of mine who's writing a book and asked me some questions about what I saw growing up and when I got to be a fan. 
And so I had to go back and do the research, since it was written questions. Uh, I did the research uh, to see, and living in Georgia, here in the States, uh, in the Southeast, where wrestling was at its zenith in the 1970s and until the mid-80s before the national expansion, I got to see 14 different territories um, between, I'm not going to name them, but just Georgia, Alabama, the state due west, and Florida, the state due south, um, and whatever I could pick up from cable networks like TBS or WWOR out of uh, metropolitan New York City, 14 different territories. And so from the 70s until the mid-80s, it was just heaven for a wrestling fan to live in Georgia at the right place where your cable company had the right channels. You could watch wrestling nonstop every weekend. So that's what I did. Yeah, awesome, man. Like, like most uh, people growing up, all we did was watch wrestling on the weekends. Um, right. So before wrestling, um, before you actually got involved in wrestling, um, you had a, was it a career in criminal justice? Still do. Still awesome. do. Um, are you able to sort of tell us about your life in criminal justice, um, how it was uh, prior to wrestling? Um, finished up undergraduate, graduate, and law school in the mid to late 80s and became um, involved in the criminal justice field. That would have been like 1985, before I had actually finished graduate and law school, um, but got it all done and have been working at that ever since, 35 years. It's gonna come to an end, I think, in about a year and, when is September? A year and three months from now, I'll be able to retire after 30, then 36 years of doing it. But I've been lucky enough to be employed by the state of Georgia and then by the United States courts, the federal government, the federal courts, for the last 27 of those years. It's, it's just been incredible. I love it. Love making a difference, protecting the community, uh, and making sure that we are administering justice tempered with mercy uh, in, in the court system uh, as part of our mission. It's, it's uh, very fulfilling. And from that, I would go straight into the complete bullshit world of Vampiro <laughs> setting Sting on fire and throwing him off of a 12-story you know, scaffold. <laughs> <laughs> so you're working uh, sort of in wrestling while also having a career in uh, criminal justice simultaneously? I'm sorry? Uh, were you working uh, in the cr in criminal justice system as well as doing professional wrestling simultaneously at the same time? Oh, yes, absolutely. I've been doing criminal justice law work since 85. Uh, about the same year I started writing for the newsletters, for the sheets. Um, and then I, I, I had done radio. I had been a, uh, I was a, I was an athlete in high school and a little bit in college, but I was also a disc jockey and I, I played records and, you know, I played top 40. I played AOR, album oriented rock. I played country, uh, adult contemporary, these American uh, uh, radio music formats. And then I got into only because I asked uh, uh, high school and college play-by-play -play of athletics. I did basketball, baseball, and football. And so when I moved from deep South Georgia to Atlanta, I uh, just met the right people, lucked into it, and the magic words in wrestling, I'll work for free. And, you know, the first words back to me were, you're hired, and that's when it started. That was in 89. So I've been doing both the whole time. Are you able to sort of speak about what you, you would consider your craziest story in the criminal justice system? 
in the criminal justice system. Wow. Um, I won't do the voice because honestly it would hurt too much, but I had, and I can't give names obviously. Of course. But in the, this would have been in the early nineties. I had a, um, uh, um, a suspect, uh, an individual who had entered a plea of guilty. This wasn't a question of was she guilty of the offense uh, of which she was charged. She was working her way through the process and I was interviewing her and we were going through just basic personal information. And she indicated to me when we got to the health section that she had um, a touch of AIDS, which is, you know, AIDS, when you guys, maybe before you were born, you know, the horrible scourge of, of, of the earth back in the day yeah. and a pretty much an automatic death sentence, but you didn't have a touch of it. You know, you, you, you had it or you didn't. It's like being a little bit pregnant, you know, yeah. that this doesn't happen. So she told me she had a touch of it. What she meant was she had been diagnosed with HIV, yeah. the human immunodeficiency virus, which can lead to AIDS, is an AIDS, and doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll get it. But so that's what she interpreted when they said, you are HIV positive. She thought that meant she had a touch of AIDS. And then about six months later, when we were getting ready for her sentencing appearance, I asked her for an update. And she said that she had been upgraded from a touch to a trace, which meant <laughs> that she had uh, developed full-blown AIDS. There's nothing funny about AIDS, but no. to hear someone describe their own medical condition in those terms, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is one of the great human tragedies to see what this woman is enduring and trying to stifle a laugh because she thinks she's gone from a touch to a trace. The, the happy ending to that is she did not pass away. She ended up getting treated and is still to this day alive um, and doing much better and no longer in the criminal uh, industry, as it were. But I had someone tell me they went from a touch of AIDS to a trace of AIDS. <laughs> and, and, and you can't tell them the truth. You know, I'm not a doctor. I can't say, you know, well, you're misinterpreting that. Here's what's going on. And uh, so th there's, I'll, I'll tell you this, I've been married to my wife for Oh boy, 21 years. We just had an anniversary, but we've been off and on boyfriend, girlfriend, and, and great friends since 1980. So I've known her for what's that 40 years. Yeah. And, um, I, she's heard all of my crazy stories, including that one, uh, and then the 50 others. And she will, gosh, probably if she's listening somewhere out here in the around the lake, she'll probably say, I heard you talking about that case. Tell me the Uncle Bobby story. Tell me, the, you know, because she just loves hearing those stories. It's one of the fringe benefits. You don't get rich uh, being a public servant, but you do get great stories. That's great, man. I love that. <laughs> um, back to wrestling. Um, how did you get involved with Global Championship Wrestling? When, back to the I told them that I would work for free stuff. Mm -hmm. um, when I moved to Atlanta, uh, met Stephen Prazak, who's my best friend still to this day. And we would write both wrote for the sheets and we would run around and catch indie shows 
um, and do reports for the newsletters. We went to a show um, of the Georgia All-Star Wrestling Group uh, out in Carrollton, uh, about an hour east of Atlanta. Um, and the show was what it was. It was an indie show, a lot of people, good show. But the uh, ring announcer, okay, the guy in the ring, our next event is one fall with a 15-minute time limit, making his way to the ring. This is the easy stuff. That guy yeah. screwed up everything. I don't know if he was not – in fact, I'm sure he wasn't smart to the business. Uh, he, didn't, he, didn't know, he didn't know that there was a business. They just said, read these cards. You know, and he's just some guy. And so he stands in there, and he's, he's calling men by women's names because he's got the cards out of order. He's calling mask guys with a name like, here he is, Bill Smith, and here's a guy oh, in a hood, wow. you know, and, and here he is, the Marauder, and it's a guy in trunks and no mask, you know, that kind of stuff. So at the intermission, I went up to the promoter, a guy named Joe Petticino, who just passed away a couple of months ago and was my mentor. Uh, I went up to Joe, had never met him, and I just said, look, my name is Scott Hudson, I've been doing radio for about nine years. I've never done television, but I know the business. And I don't know what you're paying that guy, but I'll do it for nothing. And he said, you're hired. And so I didn't do that show, but I did the next show. And it, did, it went well. And, the, and a week later, I was on his television show, never having done television in my life. And uh, that went great. And Joe's the one that ended up, he ended up putting me as play-by-play -play on the Georgia All-Star Show less than a month later. That was his gig, and he didn't want to do it because he was busy running the company. So that was, that was given to me. And then about a year later, he started Global Wrestling Federation on ESPN. And uh, that was it. You know, it last, I lasted out there for about a year, year and change before the money dried up and they couldn't fly anybody in. They had to use only uh, Texas uh, talent. Awesome, man. That's a, um, I actually didn't really know um, much about sort of uh, global championship wrestling or the fact that you even did any of that for free. Um, that's a smart way of actually getting your foot in the door, man. Um, sort of just it saying, is. hey, I'll do it for free. Were you offered like sort of a paid contract by them as soon as a week later or did it take well, some time? When, correct. When global started, they, they paid. Not much. I mean, again, they were an upstart. I think they were paying like $500 a month. They would pay us to go out every weekend. I'll put it in these terms. I worked all week, you know, Monday to Friday. I would take a couple of hours off on Friday and I worked downtown Atlanta. So I would just drive down to the airport um, and Atlanta airport. I don't know if you guys, oh, you guys, I'm sure familiar with Atlanta airport. It's insane. It's the biggest and busiest in the whole world bigger than O'Hare and LAX and it's bigger. It's, it's the biggest one. So it's nuts with people. I would go down there, jump on a plane, get to Dallas, Texas, about five o'clock, uh, grab a rental car, drive down to the Sportatorium, the same place that uh, Von Erichs and World Class operated out of. And we would tape television on Friday night, um, crash at the, the Roadway Inn on International Boulevard, and then taped television again on Saturday and did that every weekend for a year. And for that, I made like 500 bucks a month. First time I'd ever gotten paid doing wrestling. 
Wow. Carl? Unbelievable. Ah, uh, yeah, that's just, <laughs> and and I know it gets crazier for you, Scott, and I'm and I've got a line of questioning coming up later on, which um, I'm I'm really excited to get into. Um, what are you? I guess your fondest memories of Global, and uh, why did your run with Global come to an end? Um, I'll answer that if you don't mind, uh, Carl. The second question first. The money ran out, right? Uh, and this is an interesting story. Joe Petticino, the one, the man I was talking about, that uh, was the founder and my mentor, hired me um, for the first time ever in the business. Um, I don't know if you guys remember. I think it's still around a little bit, but back in the early '90s, there was what they called the Nigerian scam, where people yeah. would get letters. There was no email, you know, there was no email back then. There was yeah. just letters, you know, in the mail, in the post, um, that would say, my name is King Carl Inferi, and I am king of Nigeria. And I have a ship that is stranded in the middle of the Atlantic that has, make up a number, $80 million in cash, and I want to be able to bring it in but they say I have to prepay the taxes before I'll be able to let my ship make port. I don't have the money. Can you loan me, you know, $3,000 to pay the taxes? Well, they would send this around and, and some people would bite on this, right? And obviously there's no ship. There's no $80 million. He's not a king. You, you get the idea. Yeah. Um, Joe didn't fall for that. Uh, he didn't send the guy any money. But he just said, well, I'll tell you what, I don't have, I'm not going to send you the money, but if you'll use that money to help bankroll my wrestling company, I'll give you part ownership. Shit. Well, that wasn't a scam. Joe was serious. Yeah. Uh, but the scammer bought it hook, line, and sinker, although Joe actually meant it. So the guy comes over. A guy named Olu Oliami. You can look him up, and I God knows how to spell that. I don't know. But Olu Oliami was his name. I met him. Uh, had a beautiful wife that he brought with him. Uh, and ends up, obviously, that he didn't have the money. Well, then Joe had to scramble to find investors to launch Global Wrestling Federation from an $80 million or part of an $80 million bankroll to zero what can I put together in the next two months? Uh, so he found some investors. Uh, I cannot remember their names. Danny. I can't remember Danny's name, but Danny something and his mother uh, were the investors and they, they bankrolled the company and uh, we got off and running, renovated the sportatorium in Dallas, uh, had clearance on ESPN every day at four o'clock. We were on ESPN as a daily show. Wow. We also had syndication uh, that blanketed the country. We had syndication that rivaled World Championship Wrestling and uh, the World Wrestling Federation at the time. We were clearly in third place, but we were close to being in second place just based on syndication. But house shows, that never got off the ground. Um, but that was how the Global Wrestling Federation started. When that money ended – it went from being we're flying in talent from all over the world to you've got to be within driving distance of Dallas. So that was like from one week to the next. 
and that was my last week there because obviously I'm not going to drive to Dallas from Atlanta. That's like 14 hours. Um, as far as good memories, it was seeing um, the, the people that ended up being huge stars in the business in their earliest incarnations. Uh, Raven, uh, Scotty Levy was there. Uh, Buff Bagwell was there. Uh, uh, Sean Waltman, Six, X-Pac was there. Jerry Lynn, Cactus Jack, uh, Steve Austin, uh, Booker T, Stevie Ray. Um, that's just off the top of my head. That's um, <laughs> I'm sorry? That's, uh, that's like a stacked roster of people. Oh, yeah. That, and that, that was is... the young guys. That was the guys that nobody knew. And we had other names like, you know, Jimmy Cornette and Stan Lane were there. Uh, Terry Gordy was there. Uh, there were some other other names that were there. Chris Adams was there. Um, but those names, the first names I gave you were the ones that they were building up. These are the young guys. Wow. Let's see what we can do with them. It was, it, that, that was an incredible time. And, and, you know, I knew what I was seeing. I'm not, you know, stupid. I'm seeing, like, my God, Jerry Lynn and Sean Waltman, who was at the time, he was the Lightning Kid. That was his name when he first broke in. But Jerry Lynn and the Lightning Kid were having the best matches in the country. And to see Cactus take those crazy bumps, like this guy, he's not going to be around but for like three years, but it's going to be a hell of a run. And then sure enough, he's still around uh, here in 2020. But, you know, you could see that Austin had it. You could see that Harlem Heat had it. All, all those guys, you could just see they were the real thing. Wow. I, I, now that I'm thinking about it, I've, I've totally um, underestimated global I, I mean i don't i just don't know much about it i had no idea that there were so many stars in that company or yeah. well, well now, future stars that, that, yeah that's right they weren't stars then i don't know steve austin couldn't get arrested uh back then famously uh he, he wasn't arrested obviously but famously he uh steve refused to work a program with uh jeff jarrett in the wwe yeah um when you know back in the late 90s because steve still had issues with the way Jeff's dad paid him when he was in in that time in the global days maybe a little before and getting paid like you know 200 bucks a week and Steve couldn't afford to feed himself didn't have a family but he just was living in his car same story Rocky has you know uh, Dwayne you know they they were they were living on poverty wages and Steve wouldn't work with Jeff because he still didn't like how he was treated by his dad Right. Yeah, I think I remember Steve Austin talking about eating raw potatoes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, That's a legendary probably. story. <laughs> Just like uh, Brody, uh, Bruiser Brody, who, uh, God, he's been gone, what, 30-something years now, 33 years. Jesus. But Brody, when he was uh, breaking in and getting paid, you know, again, nothing, uh, would famously have two bags he would carry. One bag would be his gear and whatever clothes he needed. And the other bag would be full of cans of tuna fish and cans of beanie weenie, like pork and beans with sliced up yeah. hot dogs or wieners in them. And that's all he would eat. That's all he could afford. They were like 40 cents a can. And right. he would just stock up and carry that around. And that's what he would eat. Wow. Um, so Global ends. Uh, how long is it between Global and WCW? Uh, global ended... First part, for me, first part of 92. And then I went back, and I had been doing the Georgia stuff. 
Georgia All-Star show the whole time. Yeah. And so I kept doing that. And again, still working at, at my real job. And, you know, yeah. I was married by then and had a real wife and, you know, a real life, but still doing Georgia. Uh, Steve Prazak and I would, were, he was by then the, co the color commentator on those shows with me. He ended up doing global with me uh, as well. Um, we did that 92, 93, 94, and 95. We would drive to wherever they were doing TV, never more than an hour or two away. Uh, but we would do TV once a month and do five weeks of television, four or five weeks, and be, get paid $5. That was it. Shit. Wow. We, we, we both made $60 a year doing wrestling for five years. <laughs> uh, but it was fun. And we knew we were good. And, you know, we just knew because Steve had done radio. He's a, he's a computer guy now. And I was a law guy, but we had done radio. So we knew we were good and there's no way they were going to get anybody a 10th as good and pay them five bucks a month each. So we got away with murder on that show. Um, and basically the whole commentary, we would get the guys over and the promotion and whatever angle, but our primary focus was to crack each other up with inside references and just bullshit to crack each other up. Well, that caught the attention of uh, Diamond Dallas Page, uh, uh, Canyon, Chris Kloxoritz, uh Disco Inferno, who was at one point in that promotion. Um, and they would watch that show just for us. We didn't right. know them, had never met them except for disco. Uh, but they would watch the show just for us because they would hear all these inside things. An example, we had a, a Georgia all-star champion. I can't remember who it was, but he quit the company. Just as, I think he just quit wrestling. So from one TV to the next, the champion that they had built around quit the business. So they had to have a new champion. And the booker told us, he goes, make up something, but whoever is the champion now, you know, okay. disco. It wasn't disco, but disco Inferno is the champion now. Okay. So we made up this long story uh, that we went over for the whole TV about the tournament and the cities and the buildings where they had the tournament to crown the new champion. And it was in God, Perth, Australia. It was, you know, in Peking and Tokyo and, you know, Rio and, <laughs> Every every city, which is of course all bullshit, but every city it also had a, it had the name of a building that was named after someone, and the names that we used were the shoot names of wrestlers, right, that weren't being used. So we would have, um, you know, at the Terry Belay High Life Ronton in Rio, this this happened, and then we remember that the the finals were at the Ed Farhat Arena in Douglasville, Georgia. Ed Farhad is famously the Sheik, you know, yeah. from the 70s, 60s and 70s in Detroit territory. So that kind of stuff. And, and, and Paige and all those guys just loved it. Long story short, 1995. Can I tell this? I think you and I spoke about this. Uh, yes. Carl. Um, yeah. um, I, I ended up being employee of the year at my job. You know, yay me. We yeah. have this big ceremony, this dinner around Christmas time. And it's in this nice place and we're all dressed up. And the employee of the year is Scott. 
And I didn't know, obviously. So I get up and it's like the Oscars, you know, you say something nice and you get your plaque and whatever. And I, you know, I sat back down at the table and that's, that's, that's nice. That's a, that's my real job. And, um, people that I respect that I'm working with. Um, and I hadn't been sat back down, but about a, a minute, literally. And the maitre d' comes up and says, are you Mr. Hudson? I said, yes. He said, we have a phone call for you at the front desk. But okay. And there's no cell phones or smartphones or anything. Yeah. I had to go to the front desk with a, uh, with a squiggly line cords. And I said, <laughs> this is, this is Scott Hudson. And I heard, yo, Scooter, this is DDP. And it was Paige. And I had talked to Paige a couple of times in person, but never on the phone. And he said, I got somebody that wants to talk to you. And, you know, a little bit of silence. And Scott, this is Eric Bischoff. I said, Eric, big fan. Congratulations on your ascension. Uh, what can I do for you? He said, we've got a spot opened up for an announcer. And a lot of people that I trust have vouched for you. And I've watched your work. And I think we can make something happen. I said, perfect. What do you want me to do? He said, can you come by Tuesday and let's do an audition? And that was it. Oh, wow. Amazing. Just like that. Just after you just won an employee. <laughs> I, I won the award. I sat down. Paige calls me. And then Eric's on the phone. And, and Tuesday, I, was, I did the audition. And I was off and running. What an incredible day in your life, honestly. It was okay. It was, uh, okay. There was, there was some uh, serious adult beverages consumed that night. I don't mind telling you. <laughs> um, I'd like, I'd really love to know about what your first day on the job in WCW was like. Mm. Um, the first day, well, let, can, let me tell you the audition story because that's way mm. better. The first day is <laughs> boring it. as hell. It's like anybody's first day on the job. Yeah. Paperwork and meet Susan and travel and this is Jill and <laughs> HR, you know, uh, great. But the okay. audition, um, in downtown Atlanta, there's a place called CNN Center, where CNN, the network, is based. Um, but it's also a huge hotel and shopping center, kind of like MGM Grand in Vegas, if you've ever been there. Um, and on that lower level, it's like storefronts and mostly restaurants and clubs and stuff. And then CNN and the hotel and go up to this huge atrium. WCW had a facade there on that lower level, but it wasn't the office. The office was up in the CNN tower. You couldn't get to it. It was secure, but that facade, which looked great, was the production studio. Um, if nobody was producing TV, it was empty. It wasn't like there was a receptionist or anything. So that's where I'm supposed to go. I go in, I walk up to the door, I hear it click. They saw me. I open the door and I walk in and sit down. And just sit there. You know, I'm on time, I'm early. And about 10 minutes later, Keith Mitchell, who uh, is just one of the all-time greats as a producer and director, uh, was with uh, World Class and is now with, uh, I think he's still with Impact. He was with Impact. I don't know if he's done any AEW or not, but he's still around and a great guy, terrific guy. Uh, sticks his head out of a door that I don't even know was there. says, are you Scott? I said, I am. He said, hang tight. We'll be with you in a minute. Okay. So I sat there another five minutes. Keith sticks his head back out and says, Scott, yeah, all right, we're ready. Come on in. So I walk through that door, and on the other side of that door is the set of WCW Pro, uh, which was the Saturday afternoon show on TBS. 
and there stands Bobby Heenan that I've never met and you know, I have idolized since I was a little kid because he'd been around since the 60s as a wrestler and a manager and an announcer now. So Keith handed me a mic. Bobby had a mic. And he said, Scott, this is Bobby Heenan, Bobby Scott Hudson. Oh, very nice to meet you. Big fan. Oh, good luck. Well, let's, let's see how this goes. All right. And Keith says, okay, you guys, um, this is the, the hard open to the show. You've got to make a hard 60-second time. Pump up the pay-per-view. I hope you know the card. Thank God I did. Um, and then pitch to the ring. It doesn't matter what match you pitch to. And let's just see how you do. In three. And that was it. That's all I had. And Bobby and I, from never meeting and after a 10-minute floor direction, nailed with a hard time, perfect, like we had been doing it for years. Uh, and that was it. And Eric came walking out and said he had been watching and said, you got it. You know what you're doing. Let's talk about, you know, contract, salary, what shows you'll be on. And Bob and I'll like, Bobby, thank you so much. Oh, great. You're terrific. This will be fun. And Bobby leaves. So that was my audition. Again, the first day was paperwork and meeting, you know, the girls and travel. It was nice, but, you know, not a lot to it. <laughs> oh, way to go, Scott. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's an incredible audition story. Um, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you, I swear to God, it's, I, I'll, I'll never forget that day. When you uh, were told, talk, talk to Eric, you know, after this audition about what you were going to do, what right. was it that he mapped out for you? Uh, first, it was just pro, uh, the WCW Pro Show on Sundays, um, because that was where um, Eric had, had come in back in ah, 91, maybe, 90, uh, as the C-team announcer, basically the one that did everything that nobody watched, right? right. Um, and then he had worked himself up famously to be the executive producer uh, of the entire company and president of WCW. Um, and when that first happened, he put Chris Cruz in that spot. Chris Cruz was terrific, but whatever reason, Chris left, and that was the spot that opened up. Um, and so that was my spot. They started me off on WCW Pro on TBS, and uh, just to see if I could, if I would show up, you know, that's been, that was apparently a problem. And, you know, would I freeze up? Could I fill the time? Could I keep it interesting that I have rapport with legend, with uh, Sabisco, uh, who was my, my, my foil? Um, was it good TV? Did the ratings hold up? All of that. And when that stuck, then I started getting other assignments, a lot of other assignments. Right. Um, so once you got all of those assignments – I'd like to know about a typical week in the life of Scott Hudson working two jobs and also, you know, with all the duties that you had in WCW, you have spoke about this with me before, but I think yeah. everyone needs to know just exactly how busy of a man you were. Oh, thank you, Carl. Thank you. Um, first, lay the foundation. I'm a federal employee for the U.S. courts in Atlanta. I love my job, love my coworkers love my building, love my judges, everything. So I worked 40 hours a week at that job. No compromise, right? Sometimes 50 hours a week. And parenthetically, during this pandemic that, you know, we're going through over here, it's up to about 55 hours a week. But forget that. 
Um, so put, plug that in as the basis. I have a real job. On toward the end, when I was doing so much stuff, I'll, I'll, I'll start there. Sunday, I would get up, go catch a flight to, uh, I don't know, make it up, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, yeah. and, do a, and, and get to Pittsburgh before lunch, go to production meetings, uh, do pre-tapes, talk to guys, go over angles, look at a format, get revised formats, and do a pay-per-view that night. Pay-per-view's over, jump in a rental car, and drive to Buffalo, New York. Get to Buffalo, maybe 1 o'clock in the morning, check into the hotel, um, grab a couple of hours sleep, be at the building uh, at about 10 o'clock for production meetings, pre-tapes, format review, you know, talent meeting, all that, and do Nitro that night. Nitro's over, come back to the hotel room, grab some sleep, get up about 4 o'clock, uh, get dressed for work, you know, in a suit. If, if I'm not at work, I look like this, but I'm having to put on a suit in a hotel room to get on an airplane, fly back, land about eight o'clock, go straight to my office and work all day. Okay. Work all day. Uh, I had taken Monday off on those pay-per-view days. Work all day Tuesday, Wednesday, work all day. Uh, Wednesday afternoon after, after work, go over to the TBS building over near Georgia Tech in Midtown Atlanta, and we would record uh, the on-cameras um, and the voiceovers for International Nitro, which was Nitro that aired probably where you guys are, Nitro that aired everywhere except the United States, and yeah. then record the voiceovers for International Thunder, Thunder that aired everywhere except the United States, and then do the uh, uh, in-studio stuff for WCW Worldwide, which ended up being the final show that WCW ever aired with uh, yeah. Mike Tanay and I. Uh, and then that's it. Thursday, work all day, nothing to do. Friday, work all day, go over to the WCW uh, offices, which by this point were over in Bindings near my house, uh, and do WCW Saturday night, which was the two hour show on TBS. And uh, that, was, that was a lot of work. You know, there were no matches. We were all doing post-production voiceover and on cameras on a set. Um, and then start back over on Sunday. Also <laughs> writing, I'm writing like uh, I had a column every week on the website. I had a day every week on the 900 number. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember that, but you know. Yeah. I can't tell you now, but call me on the 900 number, that, that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and got something for the web, the website, the magazine, the 900 number. So that was a week. The only change is if there was no pay-per-view. Right. That Jesus. Fucking, that's crazy. I was legit that, wanting to ask if you were like <clears throat> working that, uh, that job and then doing nitro, then going back to work. Like that is, I have to put, take my hat off to you. I'm not wearing a hat, but if I was wearing a hat, I'd take it off for you. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it, that was a lot of work. That, that, that all was, uh, 99, uh, and 2000, and we made it to 2001, right? Was it March, 2001? That's right. Yep. Um, that we ended. So that was two years and a few months that I, that I worked that schedule. And, you know, I knew, you know, I was at that point, I was 30, 34 to 36 years old. So I was, 
getting a little long in the tooth to be working that schedule. But, you know, also in that time I had a baby or my wife had a baby. I got divorced. I got married. I had a baby, bought a house. You know, it was, it was a lot going on back then. Sounds like that. that's probably maybe the reason that there's no hair on your head at the moment. No, <laughs> no I'm, I'm afraid that was, uh, that ship had sailed back in the early nineties, but that's a good excuse. I got to remember that. One. <laughs> um, I, I, I wanted to, sorry, Jack, did you have something? I got a quick one. Um, we didn't actually write this down, but then you mentioning that, uh, last episode of WCW worldwide. Um, right. So I thought we might as well just quickly get this one out of the way. Cause we don't actually have this one written down. I'm, I'm afraid we're just going to forget this later. Um, I've, I only discovered this, so I'm 22 years old, so I never watched WCW in its peak. I started watching wrestling 2002, 2003. So um, I only discovered maybe a year ago that there was actually the WCW Worldwide episode after Nitro had already been done. Um, how was that experience and how was trying to do that show for you? Because obviously, um, you, know, you already know the fate of the company. So um, what, how was sort of um, doing that show for you? And was there any difficulties in trying to really put it together in the first place well no is the short answer to that question because we were professionals at what we did yeah, we, we knew it was it was a television show um and in all honesty when we recorded that show it was about 10 or 15 days before it aired ah, we were okay, that yeah. far behind so when we recorded it we didn't know what was going to happen so we recorded two finishes. Yeah. Uh, um, one was, we're out of business. It was the one that aired. You know, you know, we'll see you on down the road or whatever it was I said. The other one was basically, it promises to be a huge Monday night on Nitro. We'll have it all for you right here next week on Worldwide. You know, yeah. it was just another show or it was the end of the entire company. So we recorded both. Um, it, it was it was it was easy at the time because we didn't know. Yeah. The hard part was that nitro in Panama City Beach when we did know. That was tough. Yeah. So awesome. Thank thank thanks for that. Sorry for screwing with the timeline, Carl. Um, no, I, no, we that's fine. That's fine. It is an important story because it's a, an interesting little tidbit. Um, uh, another interesting tidbit was that WCW magazine was still being produced in May of. 2001 i've actually got a copy of it in my um, man cave but uh yeah that's still going at that point when when uh, they brought me in they did a feature on me in the magazine uh just to introduce me which was nice it was only a page and it was all it was all a shoot um um but i remember i went in that little feature i went crazy for benoit chris was a friend of mine and regardless of that, he was, in my, for my money, the best wrestler in the world. So that whole feature on me is basically about how much I love Benoit. So now I'll <laughs> go find that magazine. It's cringing. It's a picture of me and my dog, you know, at my house. <laughs> I'll have to find Where's that. Scott and his dog, they both love Chris Benoit. <laughs> <laughs> I've got pretty much almost every uh... – edition of the magazine i'm gonna have a look back and see if i can find yep, that it's in there um i'm just need like a, a 20 second break i just need to go to the toilet uh, <laughs> 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 you know it you know it, it made me think just then um what was it like if you were at the commentary table 
on a live pay-per-view and you really needed to go to the toilet? That's a good question. The, that, that's, that, that is one of those things that only comes with experience. And you can say a lot of stuff about, um, well, making hard times and paying attention to the floor director and hearing, you know, what your IFB is saying and keeping the show flowing and all that, that comes with experience too. But just being able to do that is, is something that comes with experience. You can have somebody that's got one of those great, you know, John Facenda voices that can make you want to, you know, but if he gets on the mic and immediately has to go to the bathroom, you know, that's not good. That's, that's not good for, but again, that's, that's live television. That's like what we're doing. Um, my wife it, works for a law firm uh, going the other way from us down in Macon, Georgia, and they did a Microsoft Teams. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it's like a video. It's like Zoom. Um, yeah. That's how, that's what they use. And she had, she hadn't really used it and she was putting it together for a couple of the other lawyers in the firm. And, um, she was asking me like, what do I do? What do I, and how do I, and what do I, and I said, well, first off, you need to understand there is nothing like the rush from doing live television. And that's what you're doing. That there's a moment where you click go or start and you can't undo it and you just got to go. And that rush, and I, I don't do drugs. I don't drink a lot, but I can't imagine any drug or any booze making you feel that exhilaration of when, you know, Wendy Turner would drop her hand and we knew that we had two hours to fill. Yeah. And we just, you know, on a wing and a prayer, we just go. That's a right. great feeling. And, and, and just being able to control and not go out, not drink, you know, 14 bottles of water before you go out there. Yeah. Don't eat a lot before you go, you know, don't eat anything before you go, you know, you just learn that comes with experience. Fair enough. Nah, I was just, just curious about that. If you that does busted. bring up one good story that, again, I've got my diet peach Snapple, but I don't have bottles of water. They would have a cooler full of bottles of water uh, for us out there uh, because you got these Klieg lights and 80,000 people and it's hot. You know, it's really hot out there and you've got makeup on and you've got the, you know, the production assistants coming out and patting you down. Like right now I'm sitting outside here at my house and I'm I got sweat. Um, but we would just during a commercial of a whole bottle of water, but you're rehydrating. So it's not going to go through you. Right. Um, but there was always a bottle that had an H on it. Um, it's not <laughs> mine, but it was Bobby's. And right. Okay. You did not mess with Bobby's water because it wasn't water. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was straight vodka. And if you ever oh watch those old God. shows, Bobby is a funny as hell guy. And he is. He just can't help it. But he got funnier and funnier and funnier as the show went. Um, he's a pro. He is. He was. God rest his soul. But he was also getting hammered as the show went. Um, and so his comedy became... <laughs> even more barbed and he was, you know, taking even more piss out of the baby faces and putting over the heels even more. Yeah, <laughs> man, I miss that guy. <laughs> um, all right. I'll get back into our uh, line of questioning here, Scott. Um, sure. <laughs> but Jack, we might, we might be able to use that as a little uh, network extra. That can be an extra. Um, <laughs> uh, when you first became the play-by-play -play guy for WCW Saturday night, how 
big was that for you to follow in the footsteps of the likes of Gordon Soley, Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone um, on the mothership? Um, uh, thank you very much for asking that. That was the highlight of, of what I did. I mean, if you look at individual things, you know, getting to call this or being on the last this and whatever, that's all great. But nothing will ever top that day when Eric called me at my house and said, um, we want to try something with you. This was in 90, it's 97. I can't remember. I think 97. Yeah. He said, we want to try something with you. I said, name it, whatever you want. You're the boss. He said, we want to put you on Saturday night. Uh, Tony, who was the director of broadcasting, director of television, it was just too much for him to come in and do that, do a nitro um, and everything else. Just, just want to put you there. You know, Tony thinks you could do it, and I, I think you could, so we want to do that. To him, it was just another assignment, like I said, and I appreciate that. But to me, as someone who grew up in Georgia, and I watched Georgia Championship Wrestling on then WTCG, which was just a local channel in Atlanta, Channel 17. Didn't go outside of Atlanta, really. It went a long way, but it wasn't Superstation. Um, I watched that show with, uh, with Ed Caprell as the announcer. And then when the Battle of Atlanta went down and uh, Ed Caprell went with uh, Ann Gunkel and Gunkel Sports and All South Wrestling, they brought in Gordon in 1974. And Gordon stuck around until 1985 when they brought in Tony. And then Tony stayed there until basically Jim took it over when Tony left to go to the WWF in 1990. And then me. Wow. I, 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 I cried. I mean, I couldn't let Eric know. Yeah. And because it was, but at that point, there was a Nitro. There was a Thunder. There was other stuff. And it was easily the C-Team show. It was no longer the prime spot in the company, not by a long shot. But to me, it was Ed Caprell, Gordon Soley, Tony Schiavone, Jim Ross, and me. And that, to this day, gives me, I don't know if you can see, but it still gives me chill bumps. Um, that was the highlight. I'll never forget that day. Wow, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it kind of makes me think of how people would feel winning the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in NWA TNA. Like it, it's not what it once was in prominence, but it still means something to you because it's got such rich history. That's absolutely a perfect analogy. I agree. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of your broadcast colleagues um, because okay. I, I, and I've, as I've said to you before, I can tell you're having fun the whole time that you're with these guys. First and foremost, working with the American Dream Dusty Rhodes. Uh, well, again, uh, I, this will be my, I'll say this answer once and it goes for everybody that you're going to ask about. I am a Mark. As we sit here in June of 2020, I am a Mark still and, and proudly wave that flag. Um, so I, uh, grew up watching, uh, by the time I was 10 years old, Dusty did his baby face turn in Florida with, uh, with, uh, with Pac Song and Gary Hart. And when Dusty went from being the heel as a Texas outlaw with Dick Murdoch to being the baby face, son of a plumber, 
American Dream Dusty Roads at that turn uh, on Florida or in Florida. Uh, I was a, just a up to here fan of Dusty Rhodes. Uh, paid to see him more than probably any wrestler ever. Uh, and so when I got to meet him was just a thrill, you know, and I got to call him a coworker and he's so smart and the lisp is fake. You know, if you've ever heard, yeah, the lisp is fake. He's, he's a very smart, well-spoken man um, and a good dad too, um, or whatever that's worth. I know his kids even. Um, but getting to work with him was alert is like sitting at the, under the learning tree, as Ernie Ladd used to say, uh, to the guys that were trying to book when he was in Mid-South, you know, come sit under the learning tree, come sit under the learning tree. Uh, it was the same thing with, with Dream. Um, not because he was a great announcer. He wasn't. He wasn't. Remember what I told you about? It comes with experience and learning how to be and how to hit your marks and all that. For All that goes out the window with Dream. <laughs> um, and one of the things he used to do was imagine the three of us sitting here, okay? If we were all sitting in a post-production room, we'd be looking through the glass at a uh, producer, at Woody Kearse or at Brad Barnett or whoever that would be producing us as we're watching the monitors of the matches and trying to tell the story. That's how it went. Um, when I would do that with everybody else, work like a work like a charm. I'd do that with Dream. <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, keep it, you know, keep the story going, tell the story of the match, sell the pay-per-view, sell Skittles or whatever the hell we're supposed to be selling. Um, and Dream is over here listening to what Woody is saying through the IFB, but only to Dream. You know, Dusty, when Scott finishes talking about the pay-per-view, bring up the this, that, and the other thing. Well, then Dusty wouldn't hear when Scott finishes speaking, and he would also assume that everybody could hear what Woody was saying to him over the air. And so I'm going on a taste the rainbow of fruit flavors, Dream. I got to get me a big bowl. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's right. He's right. Look at this. And he'd just start talking about whatever Woody was asking him about. Cut me <laughs> off, which was just heaven on earth. Just be, but it made him him. Um, and you hear him struggle with some of the, the luchadors names or some of the, the folks from New Japan when they would come over and just, just put them in a meat grinder, you know, as far as pronouncing their name. He had a hard time with some uh, American names, much less trying to get, oh, my God, Chigusa Nagaya or Manami Toyota or Sikosis or Juventud Guerrera. <laughs> you know, it's just <laughs> laying right in the ground. <laughs> we'll clean that up in post, Dream. Don't worry about it. You can watch the shows that he and I did probably at least once a show. I'll say that on the show. Don't worry, Dream. We'll clean that up in post. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also wanted to know if, uh, you know, of any um, of your fondest memories of uh, working with the living legend Larry Zabisco. Oh, wow. Legend is uh, still to this day a great friend. Um, obviously, you know, we, we've lost so many lost dream five years ago this past week, actually. Yep. Um, but legend is still a great friend, very, very smart, well-read ethereal guy. But, uh, the thing about Larry is that on the show, he kind of came across as a curmudgeon as like this, not bitter is certainly entertaining and a professional, but he was, you know, 
if he was a heel, if he was a tweener, if he was a baby face, he still came across as that character, right? But he wasn't that at all. He was, and I can say this without equivocation, the funniest guy in WCW. With the uh, possible exception of Dean Malenko, <laughs> who was similarly cut from the same cloth. They're just so serious. And, but turn the red light off and they will crack you up. And legend is that. Uh, legend had this habit of, I think we talked about this, Carl, a couple of weeks ago. Legend loved scratch-off lottery games. Yeah. Do you know what that is? Yeah, uh, Well, in, in, in Georgia, you can buy them at the convenience store, and they've got, like, you know, this rack of, like, 200 different kinds, and they, they're, you know, one's got, you know, football teams on it, and one's got this. It's all gimmicked. So Legend loved the game that was called Jumbo Bucks. That was it. Again, just one of 200 up there. He would come in and have like a handful of jumbo buck scratch-offs. And the whole time we're doing the show, if I'm talking, he's over here scratching off jumbo <laughs> bucks, right? And more than once, we had to stop taping because I'm, you know, shoots him in, double down, step over, look at, oh, look at that arm track, almost took his arm off. And you say, hey, hey, look at that, look at that. And, it, and he had had like hit $500 on a scratch off. Like, <laughs> and, the, and the director's like, cut. All right, let's pick this up from, and like, damn it, legend. We're in the middle of a show and, you know, but look at this, look, look. And what he would do <laughs> is if you scratch, you scratch off two sections, you scratch off the top half and it tells you how much uh, you won, right? Or no, you scratch off the top half and it tells you if you won. And then the bottom half tells you how much you want. He would scratch off only the top half and then lay it down. And what he would say is, I'm going to let that grow. Just going to let that grow for a while. Like it's going to be different, you know, in an hour, a different amount underneath that scratch off stuff. So, but that was legend. He, he was incredible to work with. Total pro, great stories. Said that he still has, I think, the $55,000 payoff that he got for the Bruno match in Shea Stadium in 1980 that he you know, saved every penny of it still at, at the time, this is 20 years ago, still hadn't spent it, still in a bank account. <laughs> wow. Um, I also wanted to know quickly before I throw back to Jack with his next line of questioning, uh, do you ever get to play golf with Larry? No. I wish uh, when we were doing stuff, we would, uh, when we were doing stuff on the road, when I was on the road, Larry wasn't there. All the time I got to work with Larry was in Atlanta. And that was always, God, five hours at the time. And there was no, you know, we just spent five hours in the studio. Let's go play 18 holes. That was, that was not happening. Not for me or him. Well, I'm guessing when you, when you two went together, Larry was playing golf. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't shut up about golf. Yeah, he, that was his thing. That, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, between scratch-offs and golf, that's about it with him. <laughs> I think he'd probably be a pretty big fan of Barry Dasso then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> when Barry was doing that gimmick, that uh, hole-in-one Darso, for a while there, they called him Stuart Payne. Yeah. After... And there was a golfer, a PGA golfer named Payne Stewart, who unfortunately <laughs> passed away tragically. That's and I right, think yeah. that may have been about the same time. So they, they didn't call him Payne, uh, Stuart Payne anymore. They just right. called him 
hole in one Barry Darso. But he came out and, you know, had the the knickers on, you know, and um, <laughs> looked just like Payne Stewart. So he did a match on Saturday night once where he was wrestling Lodi, uh, Brad Kane from uh, Raven's Flock. Yeah. And Lodi comes in, just starts getting in Darso's face. And I don't know if this is a planned spot or not, but Darso was just staring at him and took the golf ball and bounced it off his forehead. And it went about six rows deep in the crowd. <laughs> and it was funny, but because it was golf, Larry popped like you laugh sometimes so hard that you can't catch your breath and you can't talk. And we're at this point probably four minutes into the match. And I'm, you know, are you going to be all right? And he's still over there just like literally his tears running down his face because of the way the ball popped off of his forehead and went out in the crowd. <laughs> Take it away, Jack. Uh, so, uh, obviously, <laughs> the <laughs> still laughing, still going. Yeah, almost spat my beer out. <laughs> that would be good. Uh, obviously, the uh, New World Order was the arguably the biggest stable, in my opinion. It was the biggest stable to ever exist in professional wrestling, and still to this day, yeah. nothing has beat it. Uh, what was your opinion on the run that the, uh, the New World Order had, and how it fizzled out in the end? It, how it fizzled out in 1999 and didn't get. Let me restart that question. What was sure. your opinion on the run NWO had and how it fizzled out in 1999 and didn't really get a solid conclu conclusion? That was Eric's baby. Um, I, I, I know that I said this to, to Carl when we spoke before, but I, I love Eric. I, I would follow him into battle. I think he's just such a creative and organizational genius about this sport. Uh, the NWO was his idea and what he envisioned was an overarching angle yep. that, would, that would cover everybody. It wouldn't just cover the NWO and the people the NWO were feuding with, that it would start small. If you could picture, this is a horrible analogy, but it, like a mushroom cloud. Yep. You know, it starts kind of small and then just envelops everything around it. That was what he envisioned for the NWO, and that's what it was. Um, it was fun to see. Uh, it was uh, creative. And I think at the end of the day, it got away from Eric because it was so over and Eric so wanted everybody to benefit from the largesse of the company and, uh, and how over that angle was, it grew to where it was so big, they split it into two factions, you know, the red and the black, another, what am I thinking? The red and the black and the black and the white. Yeah. Um, and then we had Eddie. Uh, with the LWO guys, um, and then Paul E and ECW had the BWO, the Blue World <laughs> Order, with Brian Heffron, Blue Meanie, which was hysterical. Uh, and it, it, it just got so unwieldy that there was no way to really bring it home. Yeah. Um, and you're right, it never got a proper conclusion. Uh, because honestly, I don't know if you guys remember the television show Lost that aired – Back in the early 2000s, it was huge in, in, yeah. in America, and they had it played out for four years. They wrote, you know, the storyline arc, and it'll start here and finish here. And famously, the guys that, that made the show said, we know what the first scene is, we know what the last scene is, and we're going to tell the story. Well, it was so popular, they said, we need what, four more seasons. I'm like, no, 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 we don't have four. We have, we only have, so... It, so it ended up becoming rather convoluted, yep. which is an understatement. And that was the same with the NWO, that uh, if Eric did have, and I don't know, but if Eric did have an idea of how it was going to sunset, 
uh, it didn't happen because I guarantee you he didn't see it morphing into that unwieldy beast that it became with God, probably 30 people in it and, you know, two factions and, and all of that. It would kind of get to the point where it would become sort of a curse more than a blessing for some guys because they would become a yeah. part of the NWO. And they'd, you know, instead of actually, you know, the NWO is supposed to lift people, they just become another, just another member or just another statistic. And right. um, I feel like that's kind of a shame. And then anytime they tried to reincarnate it, especially with, you know, the NWO 2000, it was just, it would never be the same again. And, um, yeah. you know, if it, even if, even if Eric Bischoff or whoever was writing uh, NWO 2000 got it right, even then it still wouldn't have been the same and it still wouldn't have been the proper conclusion. And that's just my opinion anyway. I mean, yeah. some people might say it differently because I haven't seen much. No, I, th I think you're right. Uh, you're exactly right. Um, and Eric would tell you the same thing, that it just got away from him. Um, that it was so cool and so good and so over that everybody wanted to do it. And, you know, not to knock the guy, but what the hell else is he going to do with Horace Hogan? You don't want to leave anyone out either. Yeah. So, yeah, throw him in the NWO. <laughs> yeah. He can do the jobs for the NWO. Was there ever well, any... <laughs> no, sorry, man. <laughs> um, was there ever any wrestler in WCW you, uh, you felt never really got their chance or their due? Uh, wow. I haven't thought about that. But just when you said that, the first name that came up is Steve Regal. Uh, went to be William Regal and the WWF. Uh, I, I think that guy is just incredible uh, in the ring and on the mic and as a talent and as a human being. Uh, I, I, I think we could have done a lot more with him. Um, he had probably already gone before the company ended. In fact, I'm sure of it. But um, you look at what – it's not fair to look at what Vince did with some of the talent, you can't look at Undertaker and say, well, WCW screwed that up. They did, but they would have never put that gimmick on him. Same with uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. They damn near screwed him up. Remember, he was the ringmaster with, uh, with uh, DiBiase, yep, and yep. then he was going to be Chili McFreeze, yep. which makes no sense. And then he wouldn't do it and said he wanted to be uh, Steve Austin, be Stone Cold Steve Austin. So... Uh, those guys, WCW missed the boat on, but they were never going to be pushed mm. um, to the level that they made it in the WWE. But I, I, I think people like, uh, like Regal is the first one that jumps out at me. Um, everybody else, I think they, they got the opportunity and got pushed uh, to the level of their drawing ability and their ability in the ring. You, can, you know, I could watch uh, Secosis and Ray Jr., you know, go for 30 minutes a night, 365 nights a year. But not many, not a lot of people are going to want to see that. Not enough to fill buildings or to get ratings. So no offense to those guys. They're incredible. But I think everybody was slotted pretty much right. But Regal is the first one. If I put some more thought into it, I could probably come up with some more. Um, but he's the one that jumps out. Awesome, man. That's great. I would say it's um, a pretty good one. I, I always uh, sort of looked back on William Regal and I know him from WWE and I was surprised to even see that he was in WCW at uh, one point. Again, that's just my age showing. Um, going back to sort of uh, Bobby, Bobby Heenan, uh, do you have any, any more uh, funny Bobby, Bobby Heenan stories? I'm sure you've got absolute stack loads of them, but any ones that you oh, stick out? Uh, Bobby um, was never... The red light was never off with Bobby. 
I mean, if we're sitting around, like if we're sitting out here on my porch at the lake, the red light's off and we can hang out. Yep. But if it wasn't just in a completely taciturn, docile environment like this, the red light was on. And Bobby was always uh, on stage. Famously, and he did this more than once, um, WCW always put us up in nice places, nice hotels, you know, on the road. And for those of us that they took care of our travel. Well, the wrestlers, they were on their own. And so they're staying at, to bring it back full circle, the roadway in on International Boulevard in South Dallas. But Bobby, as part of the announce crew, stayed wherever the, you know, Jill over in travel put everybody up. And there were nice places. But Bobby, when we would walk into the, into the lobby of the hotel, it's nice. It's not like a Hampton Inn or a Holiday Inn Express where the lobby is about the size of a, of a convenience store and that's it. These are lobbies that are ornate and two stories with sweeping staircases and all that. We would walk in at about 1130 at night because the show's over and nobody's hanging around the bar except us that are coming back in. Bobby would walk in and if there happened to be the cleaning person with a buffer, you know, like, like, a, like a vacuum cleaner except it's got that gimmick, it spins around that floor, floor shines up the, yeah, that shines up the floor and all that. Bobby and it's plugged in, way ass over there beside the concierge desk, and this guy's buffering the floor over there. Bobby would give us the Iggy, and to let us know to watch, he'd go up and wrap his foot in the cord, and take the bump, and then come up fighting the cord, right. <laughs> and pull the buffer out of the guy's hand because he's got headphones on, not paying attention. The buffer comes flying out of his hands. Bobby's on the floor, rolling around with the cord. The buffer's going in 10 different directions. Old women are jumping out of the way. It's knocking over <laughs> chairs. Um, and then he'll he'd finally, you know, win the fight with the cord and stand up. And by this time, he's unplugged it somehow. Um, and, you know, just dust himself off and pull the cord off his foot and, you know, look down and, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, and walk up and I'm Bobby Heenan checking in. <laughs> you know. There's again that happened over and over again, and multiply that times twenty different cleaning devices in a hundred hotels. Just let your imagination run wild. That's how he was. He was outstanding. I so, didn't know it happened more than once. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, There's other stories about like Heenan Chowder, I won't discuss that with you, but just that oh, was God. disgusting. But can only imagine, right? <laughs> were there like ever many times? So obviously, working with with Heenan would have been hilarious. So yeah. like almost every day, uh, would there be ever more than one time you had to like had to do a take with? Uh, sorry, was there ever? Would you have to ever have to do more than one take with Bobby when you would be recording segments? Or was no. it always just first go perfect every time, even when he was getting up to his usual shenanigans? Uh, well, Bobby didn't do shenanigans when we were doing studio stuff. Good point. Honestly, that was only the dream that would pull that. And legend if he had the scratch off. Yeah. But uh, no, Bobby was a total pro. I mean, again, he, he, he knew when the red light was on that we were, we were working and we were, you know, getting paid good money and that was work. Now, it was also a work that he was fighting the buffer in the hotel lobby, but it was a different kind of work, you know? Yeah. 
Carl? Right, righto. Uh, Scott, I wanted to ask you, you know, it's a pretty broad question, but what are your fondest memories of doing WCW Saturday Night and WCW Worldwide? Wow. Again, Saturday Night, it was just doing it. It was never work for me. Never. Um, I'm still a mark. Uh, just showing up was just heaven on earth to me. I'd do it again tomorrow. If uh, Eric called and said, we're going to get the band back together. Can you be at the studio at, at four o'clock? I'd you know, absolutely. I'll find my suit. Um, absolutely do that. So just doing it was my fondest memory. When you're doing only studio wraparounds and voiceovers in the studio, there's not an awful lot of memorable stuff that happens. It's like this. Uh, you know, what we're talking about is great, but it's not like the fact that I'm sitting on my porch and you guys are in your house. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, well, I'm, I'm on my porch. I'm on my porch every day. You're in your house every day. It's not that memorable. Yeah. But it's, it's what you're talking about and what you're seeing and, and, and doing it. That's the fun part. Yeah. Um, I want to ask I will, about... I will say this. If I could, Carl... Yeah. If you can find the Christmas episode of WCW Worldwide, where the natural born thrillers come in and hijack the show. I'm okay. sure that's on you. I think it's on YouTube. Um, but WCW Worldwide Christmas episode. I'll leave it at that. It is. I watched it uh, around Christmas, actually. Somebody sent me a link to it. And I kept a straight face. And I don't know how. <laughs> right i do not know how but people like mike sanders who is just a genius love mike sanders there's another guy uh jack that we we could have done a lot more with was mike sanders above average mike sanders yeah we actually we were speaking to alan funk a few weeks ago for the show and um yeah, yeah he's uh and i'm gonna bring up something that alan said which i found very interesting um about the wcw guys when they went to WWE. I'll bring that up a little bit later. Um, but uh, uh, I wanted to ask you about Eric and when the first time was that you could tell that Eric was getting burned out um, and the trouble with AOL Time Warner and the merger started to rear its ugly head. Honestly, I would. I can't tell you when I saw Eric getting burned out. I don't know. Um, obviously, he did. He'll tell you he did. Yeah. I couldn't see it. He was, no? he was just, he was always great to me and a good boss, but there are other guys in the company. I'm sure if you ask them, they'll be able to say, Oh, I know right when it was, it was, you know, Thursday, May 18th. And we were in Shreveport. I have no idea. Uh, I, I never saw that, but obviously in the overall, I can look back now and see that he was getting burned out, but it honestly, it was probably somewhere along the times of the merger. Uh, we were owned by, uh, Time Warner, the Time Warner had uh, purchased uh, Turner Broadcasting, and we didn't really realize any difference. They were interested in making money, and we were making money. When yeah. AOL came in, and it and it became an AOL Time Warner thing, they weren't really interested in making money if it wasn't making money in the way they wanted to. Okay. <laughs> If you can, uh, it was, if you can imagine this, if, if, if you owned a store, okay, and your store sold just candy, right? 
and you're making money hand over fist. People are in and out of the store and you're rolling in money because people love candy. Great. And you just keep going. And you finally say, you know what? I'm tired of doing this. I'm going to sell it to this guy who wants to buy my store. Um, and you say, you want to buy the store? Terrific. That'll be X number of millions of dollars. Great. And the guy comes in and says, I know you've been making money, but I think we're just going to sell raw vegetables now because we don't want to sell candy. But we shouldn't have a problem. Well, you're going to go out of business in no time. And that's what happened with us. WCW was bought, um, or Turner Time Warner was bought by AOL or merged with AOL, and they hated wrestling fans, hated them. They just saw, you know, the what, what's the old joke about what has uh, 60 legs and five teeth, the front row at a wrestling show? <laughs> that's, what, that's what they saw. And they yeah. said, we don't want our pristine name attached to those people. So we're not going to have their show on our networks. And they're now, not thinking about the, uh, the college kids. They're not thinking about the casual fans. They're thinking sure. about a, a, a small minority of fans that may not have the best dental hygiene. Exactly. And, and they, they didn't know. We were so much more than that. Um, now, granted, we weren't making money for the last two years, not by a long shot. We were bleeding money. But we had made money before. We'd make money again. It's a cyclical business. And it would have come back, but they just did not want wrestling fans. They didn't want the, the demographic. They didn't want the reputation that their new crown jewel in their uh, portfolio had wrestling uh, on anywhere. So we got canceled across the board. Pro, uh, well, worldwide was syndicated, but they pulled the worldwide syndication deals. They canceled Nitro, canceled Thunder. Saturday night was already canceled. And they just said, okay, now make money. I'm like, how the hell are you supposed to make money as a wrestling company when you have no television? Except in, no offense, Australia. You know, nobody's <laughs> going to see that in, oh, you know, God. Dallas, Texas. It's so true, though. So true. And so then, then we went from, again, losing money, but still being a multi, multi, multi-million dollar operation to being basically worthless. And Vince saw that. And Vince is a genius. I'm not going to knock him. Uh, he saw that and said, well, how about I just buy what's left that was two months ago worth $60 million and is now worth $4 million, four or five, depending yeah. on who you ask. And that's what he paid. Ridiculous. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, I, I, I guess it's October 1999, uh, how did you feel when you found out Eric was now gone and Vince Russo and Ed Pereira were coming in from the WWF? Uh, I didn't know Vince, didn't know Ed, knew who they were, but, you know, it's another boss. Ended up, you know, getting along with those guys great too. I know that Vince and Eric don't necessarily see eye to eye, and that's probably no. an understatement, but I love those guys. To this day, I still talk to both of them. Um, as recently as... Well, not this month, but last month. I still do. I, I just think the world of them. But they don't care for each other. But I got along great with Vince. Still do. Um, a, a smart guy. I think Vince's uh, problem was that he inherited something of a mess when he got there. And Vince is a creative genius. Vince Russo 
is a creative genius, um, but not necessarily somebody that can, that has the skill at herding cats like it would take to whip WCW back into shape right. uh, from where it was in 99. I think, I think for Vince Russo, um, when he was in the WWF, he had people that could do that part for him. Correct. So he could focus on the writing of the show and that's just all he was supposed to do. And that's what he was good at. He wasn't good at, as you said, herding the cats. He needed that uh, support system like he had with uh, Jim Ross and and Bruce Pritchard with obviously Vince McMahon telling Bruce to not mess with Vince. Uh, But in WCW, those people that were in those positions are working against Vince Russo uh, behind his back and, and, and with Bill Bush and all that. And it's just, it was a recipe. Well, for disaster. It, it, it was, it was the culture in WCW that uh, you mentioned Jim and Bruce and the WWF um, and Vince McMahon obviously was the boss. You know, if, if Vince Russo and Bruce and Jim had three different ideas and it went to Vince he might just say, you know what, screw all four, three of you guys. We're going to do this, which is my idea. But there was a boss there. WCW didn't have that. And so everybody was always angling to try to get to the next level. And at some point, Vince Russo was at the level they wanted to get to. They weren't necessarily trying to undercut Vince because they didn't like him. They were trying to just get to Vince's spot. And yeah. that was the culture that that WCW had. It was sad because it was still such a fun place to work. That's why I, I, I get mad when people, you know, uh, believe Vince Russo is, is the reason that it died. It was already, it was oh, already dead, you know, it just hadn't, just hadn't flatlined yet. Uh, and it, it, it was salvageable. We could have done something, but when they canceled television, when um, Jamie Kellner and Brad Siegel, came in and destroyed the television component of the company. Um, and the sad thing is they were gone in six months. You know, yeah, they I mean, came we'll, in, destroyed we'll get to WCW our, and were gone. We'll get to our fuck yous to Jamie Kilner soon. Um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to know, you know, three months, three months, Vince and Ed had control of WCW television and could do what they wanted. Uh, and then, you know, Vince was asked to be a part of a committee. Um, do you feel that's an unfair amount of time to give somebody to turn something around when they, what they want to do is build a, the, a new foundation with the younger guys, take the older guys off TV and build a foundation. Do you feel that's a, just a little bit unfair amount of time for two guys to turn something around when... I think they said from the outset, it takes time to build this. Absolutely. Uh, and no, and no, it wasn't a, not enough time. But uh, you guys are historians. You can go back and look. And WCW, notoriously, from its incarnation back in 1987, 88, when, Tur- when Turner bought out uh, – uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, and it became corporately World Championship Wrestling. That was just the name of the television show. Then it yeah. became WCW. They were going through bookers like that. 
Yeah, um, over and over from, and over again. From George Scott to Ole Anderson to Bill Watts to Rick Flair to Kevin Sullivan to Jim Cornette to Jim Ross. Um, and then when Eric came in, Eric was not the boss, but he was the booker. He was the one. He had guys that would help him flesh out storylines like Kevin and Terry Taylor, but Eric was the guy. And then when that fell apart, it again became back to just who's in charge this week? Kevin Nash, another guy that I just adore. Uh, and believe it or not, I respect him as a booker. He wasn't really that awful, not by a long shot. I don't, it was I don't think consistent. he was bad either. I thought he was great as well. And But again, didn't get enough time. And then Vince and Ed come in. They're not given enough time because it's what have you done for me lately? Um, and lately it's in like last week's numbers. Hire a booker on Monday. Hire a booker on Wednesday. You've got Nitro on Monday. Nitro's numbers aren't through the roof. You're fired on Tuesday. Well, that's no way to do business. I mean, it's like hiring a, uh, an American football coach if you hire him before the season starts and then fire him halfway through the season because he's not undefeated and the odds-on favorite to make it to the Super Bowl, well, that's insane. But that's what WCW was doing and had been doing since the very beginning, the exception being when Eric was in charge. Yeah, and, and I'm, I'm happy to hear your thoughts on Vince because there are a lot of people that still just drag his name through the mud for years and years, and it's like <laughs> the ratings went up in those three months. They went up. They did. And and honestly, go back and look at what everybody says was the nadir of WCW, which would have been mid-2000 until the very end. Um, and look at the ratings. They're higher than Raw's ratings now. Exactly. And I think I told you this when we talked last. Uh, in 2001, the ratings average for Raw, sorry, for um, Nitro and Thunder were doing higher than what Raw and SmackDown were doing a couple of years ago. And, and that's Thunder against SmackDown. And Thunder, which people always said was a shit show or whatever, which I don't agree with, that was doing higher ratings and a higher ratings average than what SmackDown was years later. True. And another one that I, I know you and I spoke about, when we were hot and heavy, when the Monday Night Wars were going nuts, uh, there was probably 9 million people watching wrestling on Monday night. Yeah. Sometimes we had 5 million. Sometimes they had four. Sometimes they had six and we had three. When we were on our 83-week streak, you know, we had six and a half and they had three and a half, whatever. There was 9 million people watching wrestling on Monday night. And now when they bought us out, when we went under and we're now what, 19 years out. I mean, those 9 million people didn't die. Maybe some of them did say it's just hell and a million of them died. There still should be 8 million people out there willing to watch wrestling on Monday night. And the WWE puts out a press release when they have, you know, like two and a half million people watching Raw. You know, where did those other people go? They ran them off. It's their fault. Um, <laughs> Not ours. I, I also want to ask, I also want to ask uh, how you felt when you found out that Vince Russo was going home in January of 2000. Um, 
I mean, I know Again. Kevin Sullivan was taking over, and to be honest with you, that little stint that Kevin Sullivan had, better television than WWE's done in the last 10 years. I don't care what I agree. say. Uh, I, I take a backseat to no one in my admiration of Kevin Sullivan. Um, if, I've, if I have to live with, I got to work with Eric Bischoff, Vince Russo, and Kevin Sullivan as the bookers, I, I, you know, you want to throw in Jimmy Cornette and Paul Lee, that's probably five of the smartest guys in the business uh, that could have a book Definitely. anymore. But uh, when, when Vince went home, again, I had a job to do. I had a company to work for. I had a contract to meet, and I was going to do what I was told. That's just the way it goes. Um, Vince came back famously in, uh, in uh, April but, uh, of, of 2000. But again, it was just the next day at work. It was, it was chaos, but that's kind of what we had become accustomed to. Yeah, and, and I will say this because I've just finished, I'm just about to get to April of 2000, my chronological viewing of WCW and, uh, I just finished <laughs> Uncensored 2000 and everything is just, it's really good television still. And I just want to put it out there that this is better than what's going on today in the WWE sure. without a doubt. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Jack, you're back with us. I am indeed. Yep. Sorry about that. A uh, little absence. Um, I just thought I may as well just quickly dip instead of interrupting. Um, when you finally got promoted to WCW uh, Monday Nitro, how exciting was that for you? Oh, fantastic. I had been doing uh, what WCW called the backstage blast for ah, a year, maybe eight months before that. So I'd been on the road to Nitro and doing Nitro play-by-play with uh, Chad Damiani and Jimmy Barron. But it was a uh, internet-only broadcast which was one of those deals, I don't want to try to overthink it, but it was like you could turn the sound up on your computer and hear us calling uh, the matches, but, when th- but there was no commercials. If there was a commercial on the television broadcast, obviously we can't change that, but we would have interviews with talent that we were doing during the commercials. So that, it, was, it was nonstop three hours. So that were designed for people to play those uh, while watching Nitro? sort of uh thing yes oh man that people aren't even doing that these days like they're not doing anything like that now and this was 20 years ago (laughs) yeah it was see Uh, i wouldn't have been able to watch any of that because i had dial up mo i have dial up internet (laughs) that that would not have worked (laughs) (laughs) like you try and download a porn video back then you, you you would wait three hours for a 30 second looping video that's that's a nightmare for someone who's who's a horny teenager. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, tell me about your experience getting beat up by Rick Steiner on Nitro. Oh wow, uh, uh, that was '99, June, July '99. Yeah, um, I had not been on Nitro. That was that was what was twofold. First, it was basically my audition to see if I was going to be part of that backstage blast stuff. That was about the same time. All right, yep. I'd been, I think I'd been doing backstage blasts a couple of weeks, and they wanted to see how I did on camera. Plus, uh, Tony Schiavone uh, had said that he had been doing television since 83, basically without a week off, and he wanted to take uh, two weeks off. Just wanted it, needed it. Yep. 
and then would I do nitro? Are you nuts? Of course I'll do it. <laughs> Where do I go? Call Jill and travel. Set it up. And uh, and I don't know if there's a Jill and travel. I've long since forgotten those folks. But um, that was the story. That Tony just wanted uh, two weeks off to take his family to the beach and forget about everything. So that's what he did. So I did the show, uh, and I can't remember where they were. It seems like one was in Memphis. I can't remember. But I know the last one was in uh, Rockford, Illinois, home of Cheap Trick, one of my favorite bands. Um, and we, after the second week, Eric calls and says, well, you did great. Uh, you know, you, you kept us moving. It was great. The reviews were great. Uh, unfortunately, the ratings went up. So we've got new people watching that probably don't know the show without you on them, without you on it. So we got to get you off the show. So, okay, what do you want to do? And he goes, well, can you be in Rockford and we'll figure it out? Yes, sir. So I go to Rockford. Uh, before the show, Eric comes to me and says, we're going to have uh, Rick beat you up. I said, okay. He said, I said, what, why? And he said, well, the storyline is um, Rick's a heel. He's an asshole heel. He's also a legit All-American wrestler. And you're going to tell the story up until that segment of why is somebody like Rick Steiner, who was an All-American wrestler at Michigan, um, you know, meddled in the, in the Pan-American games and all the legit stuff because the guy's a stud. Why does he need to use a chain and hit somebody with a chair? You know, all that stuff, all the heel stuff. So the story's going to be is every time Rick Steiner's name comes up, you're just flabbergasted that a legit amateur has to go to those extremes. And maybe he's not good enough. Maybe he's lost a step, you know, so he's got to resort to the bullshit. And so then Rick comes out and beats me up. Well, when, Rick and I heard that story. Rick said, all right, what do you want to do? I said, just do that. Uh, whatever Eric said. I said, I, you know, I was an athlete, you know, in high school and college, so I can take whatever you've got. I, you know, you can kick my ass. There's no doubt about that. But just don't be afraid. Just lay it in. Beat, beat me up. All right. So he said, are you sure? I said, I'm 100% sure. So he comes out, rips my headphones off, pulls me over the desk, throws me in the ring. I'm begging off. And uh, he said, all I'm going to do is belly to belly. -a. He said, just roll with me over my left shoulder and don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> and which was the best advice ever, because if I had, I would have passed out. Because when he landed on me, he landed full force. Rick's 250 pounds and just on top of me. And then he mounted me and started punching me for real in the face. And uh, they came out and pulled him off of me. Um, but that got me off of television because they went to a commercial. There's no announcer, you know, because I'm in there dying. And they come and pull Rick off. And Eric comes out and announces the rest of the show. And I'm still in the ring. And uh, <laughs> when we come back from the break, and I can't remember who it was. God, I wish I could. One of the floor directors was dressed up as the security guy, but he's directing everybody in the ring. And so he's over me like, my face is facing this direction and his face this way. He's like right over me. And he says, Scott, we're back in 15. Do not smile. Because apparently I was smiling for all daylight. He said, don't smile. The reason why was they started off here, you know, on me and then pulled back because I'm dead, right? 
and uh, they put me on a on a backboard and a, a neck immobilizer, you know, the whole drill. And you know, I give the thumbs up as I'm being carted down, you know, the eighteen thousand people or whatever clapping for me. And uh, that was awesome. And they put me in an ambulance and do the door slam thing, and the ambulance drives out and all that's. I don't know if it's on the network version, but it's what aired on Nitro. Um, and so we're pulling out, and whoever the floor director was says, "Okay," and we're clear. And one of the ambulance guys, who's legit, says, "Okay, uh, you're Scott, and I'm Scott." He goes, "What time have you got to be back?" I said. I'm dead. I don't have to ever be back. He goes, Oh, thank God. Cause we really need to stop by the drugstore and get some cigarettes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what you want? I've, you know, I got the night off. And so they go to a, like a CVS and go in there and pick up a carton of cigarettes. You know, so that, that was that night. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> what an awesome story, man. I, I, I feel like I need to go watch that for myself now. I'll, I'll go see if I can find it on the network, but with how uh, much that's G- added. It seems like it's July. Maybe the I'll, first or second Monday in July. I can't remember. Of 1999. I'll find it for you, Jack. Well, it, it would probably be at, Is it on the network? Or yeah, it would something that would, I'm sure it's on the no, network, but I don't would, know if it's been chopped that. up. Right. No, it might have been chopped up, though. They did a lot of chopping on that stuff. Yeah. Why, why do they do all that stuff? Like, I don't understand. I don't know. I don't know. Like, uh, Just leave it. I mean, I understand the, the music copyright, like for the ECW stuff with New Jack matches. Like, I get it. Oh yeah, but yeah. like you know the uh, segments and you know cutting people's matches out, like you know, this just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, next question though, uh, me and Carl had a bit of a laugh before this uh, interview uh, about this question. Actually, um, we oh boy. <laughs> we were having to think about like sort of Mike Tanay uh, being sort of a very straight guy, very uh, you know, sort of a very a bit of an angel, if I, uh, if you would say. Um, but have you ever seen him get drunk? And let loose. <laughs> Tanae? Yes. No. Never? No. Never. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so I, I'm not saying slime. he hasn't. I mean, he might be the biggest sot in Vegas. I have no idea. But <laughs> I've never seen it. Mike was a great guy. Just, uh, they called him, we called him the professor uh, legit because he knew everything. Yeah. He, he's one of those that just knew dates and places and <laughs> uh, circumstances. He, he, he was, he was and, and still is a genius. I don't. I haven't talked to Mike in a long, long time, fifteen years or better. I guess. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah. Haven't seen him since the TNA days, which for me ended in two thousand five. Wow. I haven't talked to him since, but uh, loved working with him. Loved hanging out with him. Uh, again, just always learn something when you talk to Mike. I mean, I, he's forgotten more about this business than I'll ever know. Wow. How often did but you? Uh, drinking? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, ask him i don't know uh, actually i think I that would have been i think there would have been some hilarious stories about mike today sort of getting drunk and letting loose you know sort of a side yeah what what would no a, a, a drunk mike today would have probably really cut the promo on uh the pepper gomez ray stevens feud in san francisco <laughs> you know that that match really wasn't all that good you know, Pepper Gomez is overrated. He was just a steroid guy before there were steroids. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. I don't think he's going to do anything like like we would do if we were drunk. Talk about, you know, which one of the Spice Girls, you know, what order we would do them in. Mike would just be cutting promos on Pepper Gomez. That's it. We're getting him drunk and getting, and getting an interview with him. That's it. That's the side of that. <laughs> Tell him hello for me. I miss him. <laughs> um. How often did you interact with Eric Bischoff? 
So was this a, uh, during Nitro, the peak of Nitro? Um, d- dur- during Nitro, n- not at all. Really? Uh, no, not even none. D- the day of Nitro, I mean, during Nitro, those two or three hours, none. But the day of, all day. He wanted to make sure that we knew what was going on. And, you know, like any television show, especially wrestling, you know, the format would be ready at four o'clock. And then by the time the red light goes on, it's not completely different, but there's a lot of changes. Somebody's been hurt. Somebody's, you know, refused to do the job. Somebody's changed the finish, you know. So he, he, was, he was in communication with us constantly. It seems it's very good that he seemed to be very, very, very hands-on. Um, a yes. lot more than a lot of other sort of guys that were in his position um, in other companies. Um, I, f- I feel like that sort of that worked to his benefit big time, uh, in my opinion, um, especially since he was able to sort of make himself a character on TV, which at the time, to my knowledge, in the 90s, having a uh, sort of authority figure. W- was it known to the public, Carl, at all that um, Eric Bischoff was the sort of um was booking I, I don't know his position again on my history of wcw is very yeah uh, he, he was he was like the he was the announcer but it was kind of like when when vince was the announcer and bret hart was kind of uh ripping on him uh yeah you, you, people at home didn't really know but then you you kind of would know but like eventually I think once he joined the NWO, then it was known that he was, you know, the. the he was he was able to make himself a character on screen way before Mr. McMahon ever did. He was he was Mr. Yes. McMahon before Mr. McMahon existed. Exactly. That's just, just, sorry, just exactly right. That's, just spill your beer. No, 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 it's an empty bottle. Um, okay. No, that, that's the point I was trying to get to. Like, um, you know, it's uh, great that he was hands on because he's able to get himself to that position and able able to understand sort of the business and uh, the wrestlers so much the point he was able to get himself in uh, sort of stories and as you said become Vince McMahon before there was a Vince McMahon yeah um, I, I think it would be uh, it would be realistic to say that maybe Vince McMahon came up with uh, the Vince McMahon character because there was an Eric Bischoff on TV but again well, it, it took him to what like Survivor Series with Bret Hart getting screwed for him to to make the decision to make himself a bad guy character on television and that's what 97 and Eric had already been doing this like way longer. Yeah. Yeah. Eric, Eric joined uh, in 96 and I think Vince had been coming down to the Memphis territory playing a heel character on Memphis TV when they were do, using Memphis as like a, uh, a training ground um, for a few months. And that was Vince getting ready to introduce that character, but it certainly was rushed after what he did to Brett. Yeah. Um, big time. Um, we would love to hear if you have any Kevin Nash stories. Kevin? Yeah. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. As, 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 as much as I, I, I love and respect Kevin Nash, my interactions with him were always professional. Yep. Um, I know there are you know, a lot of stories of Kevin, the party guy, and all this other stuff. But if you ask me one time, like you asked me about Tanae being drunk, <laughs> no for Mike. Um, but for Kevin, I never saw him out of line. I never saw him not being a total pro. That character that you saw on television, the too cool for the room and everybody, every guy, what was every guy wanted to be him, every girl wanted to be with him, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, that was a character. He was he was just a total professional, well spoken, polite. I, you know, I, I, I wish, you know, he's not going to wrestle a buffer 
like <laughs> Heenan and all this other, uh, he, he was just a pro, Kevin. Yeah. Like I, we only wanted to ask that because essentially mine and Jack's favorite is Kevin Nash. He's a, he's our favorite person. Yeah, he's I, fucking I, awesome. I, I love Kevin. Have you, inter- have you interviewed Kevin? I wish. I, I really hope that we could line that up one day because, like, I, you know, he, before I ever saw Kevin Nash and Scott Hall on television, I was a pretty nerdy kind of guy. But once I saw their swagger, the leather jackets and the bandanas and – then I started dressing like that and then I became cool and then I got laid. So, you know, <laughs> I owe him a lot. <laughs> I didn't know Kevin had been to Australia. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, I, I, I can't speak for Scott. You know, every, a lot of people have Scott Hall stories. Um, but, but for Kevin, um, you know, he is, he's a, he's big as all outdoors. He's seven feet tall. He's in shape and, um, he took care of himself and still does to this day, uh, and and is and does have that swagger and is that cool, but that what you saw on NWO was uh, was character. But he is a uh, a gem of a guy, and I hope you get the chance to talk to him. I'd awesome. set it up for you if I knew how to contact him. I haven't talked to Kevin. I've seen Kevin like once in or yeah once, maybe three or four times in twenty years. But every time it's old home week, hug, handshake, hey, how's it going? How the kids, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, it'd be fucking awesome to talk to you, man. I would. We'll uh, figure it out some someday. It'll, it'll we'll happen one that. day. It'll happen one day, man. He's like the. Uh, he's got to be the ultimate goal one. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a good one. Uh, what was your reaction uh, to what happened at Bash of the Beach 2000 involving uh, Vince Russo, Hogan, Bishop, Jarrett? You, you know how the deal goes. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll put it this way. Go watch it again if you haven't, and I'm sure you have. Yeah. What was my reaction? It's exactly what we said. Because we didn't know that was coming. You know, there were people that were arguing that it was a work, that it was a shoot, whatever. We didn't know about it, and we weren't given any heads up. So what you hear, I think it was me and Mark and Tony that did that show, Mark Madden and Tony Schiavone, uh, whatever we're saying that's our reaction because we had no idea what was coming we we knew uh, let me take that back we knew exactly what was coming and it wasn't that yeah i mean we had a finish we had a format we had everything we knew you know just like everything else you know and then all of a sudden this happens and we're looking around like what the hell and i think i actually rattled you know the format in front of the mic and said, this is not on my format or something like that, because it wasn't, we had no idea what we were seeing. Oh, God bless. I just, I just love that moment when Vince says, and Hogan, you big bald son of a bitch, kiss my ass. It's such an iconic (laughs) moment right there. That was a shoot that much. uh, I don't know if the whole thing was a work, but I guarantee you if it was all a work, Vince, you know, knew he was going to say that line. How quick was Hogan out of the building? I don't know. Couldn't tell you. We were sitting out in the middle of the Ocean Center. That's good, uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> I, I could, I don't know. You know until yeah. the show's over, the, we go backstage. You know, we're backstage before the show. It's a million people. Show's over. It's like we're the last ones to leave the building except the crew. Yeah. Uh, I would have been long gone by then. I yeah. can imagine. Righto. Um, back to me with my next lining of questioning. Uh, 
Scott, when did you first realize that the end of WCW was near? Before any official uh, announcements were made, when did you feel, no. okay, this is something, something's not right here? We kept getting stories and we would see it on the internet and, you know, on onewrestling.com and PW Insider and, you know, the, the wrestling sites that did news back then, Wrestling Observer, Pro Wrestling Torch. Uh, we would see reports that things were about to happen, but nobody had the real story because nobody knew the real story. There wasn't a real story. There was, you know, 10 different things. Um, we heard that Fusion Media was going to buy us uh, with Eric to be in charge. And we were going to move the whole operation to Los Angeles. Um, we heard that Jerry Jarrett had put together investors and was going to leave it in place and leave everything on the Turner family of networks and leave everything just as it was. Uh, we had heard, you know, Vince was going to buy us and make us uh, what amounted to a territory of the WWF, but keep everything pretty much as it was. We heard all of these stories the one we never heard was that we were going out of business. So your question, Carl, was when it was, when it was going to end. I knew that it was going to end when they told everybody. All we knew was there was going to be a change. We just didn't know what. Uh, but of all the, the theories that we had heard, going under wasn't one of them. And that Thursday, they brought us all in uh, the Thursday before that final Nitro in Panama City Beach, uh, they brought us all in and told us um, that the WWE was going to buy what was left of WCW and that all the television was canceled after, uh, after Nitro. And the only thing that would air after Nitro would be the, uh, the Worldwide that aired the next weekend. That's why if you watch the Worldwide show that aired, I don't say that it's the end of the company. You know, I just kind of leave it vague because when we recorded that, which was the day before that meeting, we didn't know. Mm. We didn't know that we were going under. We knew that something was going to be different after that show. If it was going to be a different ownership, if we were going to be on hiatus for a couple of weeks, we just didn't know. But going under, you, you don't hear me say, and this is the final broadcast forever. It's been a fun ride. Good luck, everybody. You know, not that because we didn't know. And we didn't know until that Thursday before the final Nitro. Right. Um, so, again, I'm sure you've told this story many a times. Uh, I, I don't know her. I wasn't uh, there that weekend. <laughs> I, was, I was young. I needed the money. <laughs> well, what are your memories uh, from the start to the finish of that day of the final edition, March 26, 2001 of WCW Monday Nitro. Let's just take us through the day of Scott Hudson oh boy. and, and how um, I'm, I'm sure that this was a, a hectic day for you. Yeah. Well, we, we knew what was going to happen. Um, I you know, caught a flight from Atlanta down to Panama city beach, which is only jeez less than an hour flight uh, to get down there. So I got down there really early in plenty of time to make the 10 o'clock production meeting and the, the production meeting uh, involved them introducing us to, I know Shane was there, obviously. I can't, I think Jimmy Hart was there. I think Bruce Pritchard. Uh, 
Bruce Pritchard was there. There was a couple of other folks from the WWF at the time that was that were there. Um, and we, uh, you know, went through the, the production meeting. Newt found out everything that was going to happen. So it was only a half a show. You know, Vince uh, and Raw took over both shows at, I guess we were, were we an hour in, 90 minutes in? Whatever it was, we did half the show, and the other half was a simulcast of Raw. And so we had, you know, a couple of matches. I think Scotty and Booker, maybe, and uh, like the, the Cruiserweight Tag Titles. Doing this from memory. Stasiak and Bigelow. Yep. And then Sting and Flair. So we had, you know, some good stuff. Um, so we get there and treat it like a regular day, like a regular show. And, uh, but we only had half a show to do. Jeez. And otherwise it was a normal day. And, you know, we, we knew what was going to happen. So I didn't know when I would see some of the folks again. So I went around and said my goodbyes um, as best I could. Um, mostly to the crew uh, because I, I, I knew that I would never see those guys again, that I knew that it's a wrestling business. I'll run into the talent uh, somewhere along the way. And I have over the years, but for the crew, never, never again. And that's pretty much been the way it is. So I went around and said my goodbyes to them. Um, and then to some of the talent that I, you know, that really meant a lot to me, especially like flair Um um, and a lot of the cruiserweight guys, um, Sean, Stasiak, um, Scotty, uh, Steiner, uh, Booker, uh, just, you know, hey, it was a fun ride. I hope I did right by you, that kind of stuff. And uh, then we started the show. And when, and when the show went down, you know, you, you can watch that on the network as well, uh, that – the the show was it's it was a normal show until Sting and Flair, and Tony and I and it was just the two of us. We knew that it was it was the end, and Tony and I are friends, and we knew it was like the last time we'd see each other, but it was the last time we'd be doing a WCW Nitro together, and okay. so you can hear a lot of emotion in our voices and a lot of what we're trying to put over with uh, Sting and Flair in that main event. Um, that was real. That was raw emotion. We didn't, we weren't fed any, any lines or anything. Um, and then when it ends and Vince takes over, Tony and I get up and go backstage and the crowd stuck around and watched on the big screen, you know, the simulcast, but we're backstage. And uh, Tony said, uh, what time's your flight? I said, I'm not, I'm going back in the morning. I got to go to work. He said, where's your bag? So it's, you know, it's in the locker room. He goes, go get it. Let's go home. And I uh, grabbed my bag and Tony had driven down. And so about 10, 15, we piled into Tony's car and drove back to Atlanta, just me and him, uh, and spent the whole trip laughing and telling stories about the wrestling business and, you know, like this, like what yeah. we're doing um, just for the whole time. Oh man, that was that was the final nitro. I guess that that must have been a pretty powerful conversation between you and Tony for I don't know how long that drive was, but uh, four hours, I guess. Yeah, uh, it was. Yeah, it was, but it was fun. Again, 
it wasn't the last time I was going to see Tony. It wasn't like, you know, we had, you know, hatchets to bury or anything. It was nothing like that. It was just, you know, oh God, what's the, what's the word? I'm, I, I don't know. It's like, it's, I don't know if you guys have ever been married and no, divorced, no. but if, if you ever get divorced, when the judge finds signs the final decree and it's over and you realize it's over. No more lawyers, no more court, no more talking to her, no more nothing. Now I can breathe. And that's what it was like. Right. That's really interesting. Um, I remember uh, just, just the, the way a lot of the um, sort of the ways people saw the last Nitro, like Alan Funk, uh, for example, didn't he mention a story about him and Three Count going and partying with college people? Too? Yeah, they, they, they like, left oh. during the show and they partied with the college people. That <laughs> does not surprise me in the least. That's just, um, it's really interesting <laughs> the way a lot of uh, people sort of treated such a significant night. Like uh, you and Tony didn't make anything bigger, but you guys just wanted to reminisce on wrestling and just drive straight home together. Whereas, you know, guys like Alan and Three Count wanted to... Sure. Yeah, but they're, but they're, you got to remember, they're young. That's true. Um, yes. Yeah, and true. T- Tony, Tony's like five years older than me. So this was 20 years. So I was 30. Yeah, so I was, yeah, it was nice. I'm, I'm 36. Tony's 41, I guess. Oh, wow. You're right. Yep. So you guys so, were younger than that at the time. We, yeah. We yeah. weren't old people by any stretch, but we certainly weren't going to go out and party with a bunch of college kids. <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's uh, it's funny. It'd be something. Um, I thought that the the whole uh, everyone, the whole company, the whole would have uh, loved to celebrate together. Sort of the end of such a significant period for uh, the company and as your your entire careers. But I, I find that um, an awesome way to sort of end it. You know, being sort of a every everything coming full circle. Because I imagine you know Tony would have uh, would have been there for you a lot during your be your biggest moments in your WWE oh, yeah. career. Yeah. Yes. Very much. And he went on to. Uh, he became the sports director for uh, Cox Communications in Atlanta, which is a God. They've got four or five radio stations, a couple of TV stations. They're just in Atlanta, so they're huge. And he also went to work for the University of Georgia football program. And I think he left, maybe officially retired from Cox Communications um, four years ago, and now just does University of Georgia broadcast football broadcast and some other stuff and now of course he does AEW um so he didn't miss a beat he hasn't missed a paycheck uh, good for him and um I wanted to um know you know from this moment driving home you go back you get home how long after that did you get a call from WWE oh wow uh let's see that was March so we had uh, severances, right? Yeah. They, they were still paying, well, I don't know. They were still paying me for three months. So that took me until June that I was still getting paid whatever um, from them, from Turner, Time Warner, AOL, whatever. Um, so it has been June. I got a call from uh, – Kevin Dunn and said, we want to, no, I take that back. It wasn't Kevin. It was Jim Ross and said, we want to meet with you. We're having a meeting at the Ritz Carlton in Buckhead in Atlanta. 
where we're going to have a couple of suites set up and we want to meet with everybody from WCW if they're interested one-on-one -on -one to see about coming to the WWF. Are you interested? Sure. Um, so my, uh, my, mine was scheduled for whatever, three o'clock. I had an hour, met with Jim, and we knew within five minutes, I said, look, um, I'm not quitting my job. I'm not moving from Atlanta. Um, there's not enough money in the world to make me do either one. And I just want you to know that. And he goes, well, then I guess that, that answers that question. So then me and Jim Ross had like an hour in the suite just to talk old school wrestling, which was great. Heaven, because oh. I'd really never met Jim until then. Um, and so then that washed along until about eh, maybe two weeks later, uh, they, uh, that's when Kevin Dunn called me and said they wanted to do something in Tacoma with the invasion angle oh, and asked Tacoma. me to come up. Yeah. Asked Talking me to come to up and aud yeah. to audition. So I went up there. Um, they had a limo meet me at uh, LaGuardia airport. And I, uh, you know, went to the studios, met everybody. Um, it, it went great. Um, did a, they put me through my paces. It was a long day. Um, and, Somewhere up in the catacombs of the WWE is uh, a videotape, I guess it's videotape, maybe digital, I don't know, of me doing play-by-play -play and Michael Hayes uh, from the Fabulous Freebirds doing color for an hour-long version of WWF Superstars, the syndicated wow. show. And that was just to see how we worked together and how, how could I handle myself in post-production um, so that's somewhere up there, um, and did stand-ups and, you know, whatever, same kind of thing with Bobby that I did in WCW. And, uh, then they told me we're going to do this in Tacoma. Um, we know you can't work here full time, but will you be able to do this? I said, absolutely. They said, it's two weeks, you know, two days in Tacoma, two days in Atlanta. Perfect. I'll do it. Great. And so I did that. Crazy to me that, um, they don't do this in Atlanta for the first one. They do of it in course. Tacoma. Hmm. Interesting that they do it in Tacoma. Was WCW huge in Tacoma? <laughs> I don't think we had ever. In fact, I know we had never played in Tacoma. We played <laughs> Seattle. Um, but I, and I, maybe, I'm not even sure about Seattle. I remember driving through. I remember we did a show in like, British Columbia, and I had to drive to Seattle to catch a plane. I'm not sure if we did a show in Seattle. So, no, we were not huge in Tacoma, not by <laughs> a long shot. I, I, just, I just don't understand that, that train of thought. Why wouldn't you just wait another week to do the Bagwell uh, Booker T match in Atlanta where WCW's home was? It doesn't Literally, make sense. It's not even across the street. It's in the same building where WCW was, where Phillips Arena, it's now State Farm Arena. But uh, yeah, they, they, they could not have screwed that up worse. Imagine that they had advertised that there will be a WCW match in Atlanta. All the WCW fans might try and buy a ticket. And then maybe the reaction to the match that I think to this day wasn't even that bad might not have got a good reaction. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so let's 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 bring it to Tacoma, which 
is oh god you know uh, scott already knows how i feel about this booker t buff bagwell it's the wcw taken over on monday night raw scott hudson on commentary arn anderson on color commentary which never happened in the actual wcw stacy keebler on ring announcing which never happened in the actual wcw no dave penza no mike today no tony shivani how did it go scott <laughs> um surprisingly well considering that stace had never done ring announcing and mm -hmm. that arn although he's one of the greatest and into the discussion of the greatest promo in the history of the business had never done uh color um so it it went it went better than i expected um because i had the same fears that you did and so did arn you know stacy didn't know uh, god love her sweetheart but she didn't know she just was she knew she was out there because she's, you know, six foot tall and more than half of that's leg and she's gorgeous and she knew. Um, she knew her role. Arn was kind of worried and, you know, what we worked on it and, you know, lead me through this. If you feel I'm talking too much, you know, give me the Iggy, you know, whatever. So he was a pro and not, not surprising. Um, but, you know, and then the, the problem with that match wasn't us. It wasn't Stacy, obviously. And it wasn't really – Booker and Buff, it was that for this buildup, you know, WCW, the main event on Raw for the title, you know, Booker was champion at the time. That should have just blown the roof off. And when Shane brought Arn and I and Stacy out, huge pop. Nobody knows who I am. I, I get that. That was my gimmick. It was just like, oh, yeah, that other announcer guy. That's what I wanted. And so, but they still pop because it was WCW, um, even though they changed the logo, which made no sense. The logo, um, oh because they, God, they, owned, started on that. they owned the old one, which I didn't well, I yeah, change it. Why? But, but the, the, the agents basically booked that match as a WCW house show match. You know, they come out, I remember what the first move was, they basically come out and grab a headlock for two minutes. You know, they should have come out and those two guys could go. Yeah. They were incredible athletes and knew what they were doing. They you worked know. together heaps of times before that, and I'd seen sure. those matches. The they should have just said, always... go out and put on the best Booker and Buff match you can. Booker, you're going over because you're the champion. Yeah. Good luck. And that would have been a completely different match. But they overbooked it and did everything they could to kill it by slowing the pace down. To where people that yeah, this is why we hated WCW, because it was – a two-minute headlock and a uh, a ninety-second leg scissors, and you know. And then they put the buff on uh, the blame on Buff, and and he's gone. And yeah, uh, was it still to this day Buff's only WWE match? Yep, I think wow. so. Or maybe yeah. he did. I mean, he might have done some house shows, maybe, but it's possible. Jeez. That's true. Rut's rough, man. It's rough for Buff, and he's the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So, Scott, I wanted to ask you, and I already know the answer, but I'm entertained by the previous answer. How oh badly did the WWE ruin the invasion angle? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that there is a, a number high enough on a scale of whatever uh, continuum to show how much they, they screwed this up. The angle itself should still be going on in 2020 we should still be having 
WrestleMania as the Super Bowl of wrestling. Of course. Where WCW versus WWE. Um, you know, the IC champion versus the U.S. champion. The WWE champion versus the WCW champion. Maybe the Universal champion versus the NWA champion. So much that could be done. It could, it could have been the storyline, again, which would have been, at this point, 19 years or better. Um, it should have been. But the, the issue is, is Vince McMahon and his fragile ego. And there's no question about that. However, the, the fragile ego syndrome extends to pretty much everyone in the wrestling business, famously when Jim Crockett, a man that I hold in, in the highest regards, when Crockett Promotions bought the Mid-South Sports, the UWF from Bill Watts, they brought in, they had that talent. They had Rick Steiner, Sting, Chris Adams, Terry Taylor, uh, Hollywood John Tatum, Jack Victory, Eddie Gilbert. Uh, you can run down the list of, of who they had out there in the Mid-South. They brought them in and immediately buried them all. Buried them all from the beginning. The only one that got any kind of push was Sting, and that was because the people just demanded it. They did give the Freebirds one huge push for the first two weeks and then just broke them up. So to see somebody win a territorial wrestling war and bury their vanquished opponent, that's not new with Vince and what he did to WCW. It's been done time immemorial. So I don't blame Vince uh, for being normal but I blame the wrestling business for thinking that's, you know, to coin a phrase, best for business. It obviously was not. It's selfish, to be honest, man. Um, Vince doing that takes away so much from the rest, from his audience. He's taking away so many possibilities from his audience. And even as recent as 2015 at WrestleMania, uh, at WrestleMania 31, when Sting lost to Triple H. I mean, how awesome of a moment would that have been if Sting had just beaten Triple H? Because, I mean... I'll give him his moment for fuck's sake. And, and they, you know, I mean, of course they were never going to give Sting the WWE championship. Um, that was never going to happen. I mean, still, that would have also been an awesome moment that they should have given Sting, even if it was just for a month or two, you know, at least give him that moment, give him that run, you know, sort of, um, cause I mean, after all, WCW caused WWE to shake things up and go into the attitude era. So, I mean, Vince shouldn't be so, you know, um, rubbing it in the face of anyone from WCW. I mean, of course, I, I again, I wasn't, what was gained? Game. What was gained from it? Nothing. Yeah. You know, they, they right. completely fucked everything up. And it's such a shame because how was that angled over in five months? Well, and it, you guys <laughs> mentioned it, but that extends all the way through when Sting made his debut. They bring him in like a house of fire. Obviously, Sting at then 54 years old still looked good, looked like Sting. Uh, or at least enough like Sting, at least the TNA version of Sting. Uh, and what do they do? Have Seth kill him, and then have Hunter, or have Hunter kill him, and then have Seth Seth in his career. Yeah. And you know, there's no money to be made there. No, uh, and it's, it's it's just like um, no one. Look, I, I liked the Triple H Sting match. Number one, it didn't need it. to be about the Monday Night Wars. It needed to be about whatever the story was going on with Sting being the vigilante to save the day. And number mm -hmm. two, it shouldn't have even happened. Everyone wanted to see Undertaker and Sting. 
Oh man! Right, that's what everyone wanted. I can't. And we never got it. We're never going to get it <laughs> unless Undertaker does another one. Those. Uh, those that would uh, be awesome. That would be awesome. They could both do it. AJ. Yeah, they could do it because Sting Sting doesn't want to work, or he, I mean, he can't work anymore in a ring. So why not have him, you know, do one of the cinematic matches with Taker? I mean, at least that way, you know, it's better than nothing, right? Yeah, well, we can see it all day and, and uh, whinge about it. But look, <laughs> at the end of the day, they, they, they completely fucked the invasion angle. They know that they did because, you know, they didn't make the money off it that they probably could have because that thing could have lasted years. And they will not take responsibility for it. Don't. Oh, no, it's always someone else's this. fault. <laughs> they, they will blame Booker and Buff, me, Arn, Stacy, Jim Crockett, Leo Garibaldi, Louis Talay, you know, who the hell ever, but it will not be their fault. And when, of course, it was. Yeah. Um, and lastly, I wanted to allude to what Alan Funk was talking about with me and you, Jack. Yep. Um, so, Scott, you know, when all of this was going down and, and contracts were going over to the WWE, uh, a bunch of the WCW guys went to Heartland Wrestling, which is Les Thatcher's uh, territory. Right. Uh, and, you know, guys like Reno, guys like Elix Skipper, guys like mm-hmm. Brian Adams, guys like Alan Funk. I can keep listing people off, but Alan said to us that um, they were all so hopeful that their contracts were bought so that at some point, some of them would start doing dark matches and tryout matches to maybe get on TV and maybe the creative team would come up with something for these people. Well, Alan said that he felt like they only put them in HWA just to help these young guys get up to speed on how to do things and how to do things correctly. And then there was a moment in time where they were at wherever they were at and one by one, they were all brought into the office and they were let go. And right. Alan was like very upset about the fact that he always wanted to be in the WWF. He, he wanted to have a chance. And none of them even got a dark match or a tryout match to see if they could do something with them. They used them just to help these younger guys get better. Right. And then they were um, just cast to the side and, and, and kicked to the curb. I wanted to, I just want, I, it's not even a question. I just want to let you know that that's what Alan felt. But, well, Alan's exactly right. That, that is exactly what happened. Um, I, and I certainly would defer to him because he was there, but I've heard that story from too many different people. Again, it's just part of the, they will not let anyone from WCW get over. Ray Jr. was the exception. Uh, Booker was the exception. To a degree, Chuck Palumbo was an exception uh, because they put him with Billy Gunn. But for the most part, <laughs> you know, and, and Goldberg's over now, but it's not because of anything they're, they're relying on WCW. They, they got him over or he's just over, period. But they, they, they were not going to let anyone from WCW get over um, in 2001 or two or three. Eric, I guess, tried, but even that didn't last long. Um, the best thing Eric can do in the WWF is three, uh, not three count, what am I thinking? Three-minute warning. That's uh, a good gimmick, but that's Eric Bischoff. He should be, you know, up here, not, you know, with a gimmicky 
uh, Rosie and Jamal angle. But again, yeah. they wanted to kill the company. They they won the war. They get to write the history, um, you know, and that's that's the way it goes. It's just kind of like well. What did Reno do wrong? What did what what did Nothing. Rick Cornell what did Rick Cornell do wrong? They could have repackaged him. They sure. could have come up with something else for him to put him in uh, something that they had created or whatever. What did he do wrong? What did Elix Skipper do wrong? What did these guys do wrong? I, that, I that could have been brought in a different way. They looked at the WCW uh, power plant talent, like all of the natural born thrillers, um, Palumbo, Jindrak. Not Stasiak so much, but he was lumped in there. But Reno and Mike Sanders and all of those guys, they looked at them as not knowing how to work the WWF style. Those guys were trained by Dwayne Bruce and Paul Orndorff and Jody Hamilton and Terry Taylor uh, to work, you know, to, to tell a story, to know how to do spots, um, to make the people care about the roller coaster ride that they were taking them on and to sell tickets. The WWF guys were taught the WWF style, which is also to sell tickets, but it's a different style. It's an awful lot of, honestly, the Booker and Buff match was a WWF style match historically, but it, in, in 2001, that was going to die on the vine and it did. Yeah. But they just did not want any WCW guys uh, working uh, WWF-style matches. They would let them come in and basically train with the guys in Heartland to, to learn how to do spots, basically to teach them in the ring what they had learned at the power plant. And then when the guys that were there at Heartland were ready, they kicked our guys to the curb. Such bullshit. It's yeah. bullshit and it's fucking cruel. It's cruel. People in the um, prime of their careers that haven't even had the chance, it's cruel to treat people like that. And Of course. But keep in mind, they killed Owen. Yeah, fuck. Legit. So they killed Rick Cornell's career. <sighs> they can do that every 20 minutes. Yeah. Sad Jack. for Rick. He deserved better. I agree. Jack. Man, eh? What a guy. Um, how much longer did you last with WWE before you left? That was it. Those two weeks. That was all they wanted. That's all I did. So after just that, that was it. Like absolutely no contact whatsoever after that. Mm, let me put it this way. They didn't try because they knew what my answer would be. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm worth anything. I'm not. I'm a low level C team announcer in WCW who's still a mark and still just, you know, thrilled to meet people in the business but i have no desire to do anything for them because of what all they've done uh and how they treat their talent and how they treat the business so no that's completely understandable and that's um that's something you don't really hear from anyone um in the wrestling business you know everyone wants to be there so to hear that from you is very surprising and also a very respectful answer and um, here's the thing it's awesome it's 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 june of 2020 if you ever hear that i'm going you know scott hudson signs with the wwe please call me because you'll know that i have either developed uh early onset dementia or i've you know somehow lost everything that i have 
don't know if you can see, but I'm out here on the lake, a gorgeous place. I've got all this stuff, <laughs> creature comforts. I've got all of that. If, if I ever sign with the WWE, you know something has really gone off the rails in a bad way. So just give me a call and try to talk me down from the ledge. Why would you want that schedule anyway? Especially when you look at that background behind you. Where are you right now? Where, you, where do you live? I live on Lake uh, Oconee in East Central Georgia. Man, it's fucking beautiful. I've, I've I really love this. Earlier. If you can see, let me see if you can. I was going to say earlier, it's just amazing. I've been like watching people all, all night just drive past on boats, and I'm just like, fuck, man. Oh, I'm yeah, it's, it's a busy day. It's a gorgeous day out here, so there's lots of uh, pleasure craft wandering around. It's an awesome background. And, again, like, why would you want to, why would you want to leave that for, you know, 300, 300 days a year to go announce for, you know, a company? You, you... To have some old man yell in your ear set, <laughs> yeah. your headset, sorry. No. Pass. Uh, um, now, if that old man is Eric, maybe. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um you've done some recent work with us in starcast events which is great to see you back for but i want to put you yeah. on the spot now that we're actually talking about sort of um you know th- th- uh fantasy questions on if you would ever you know sign anywhere sure if AEW get a second tv show would you ever be interested in going back to announcing uh yeah i guess with them sure uh because i've met tony Khan, a couple of times, terrific guy, gets it, is a, is a businessman and not a, not a jackass, not by a long shot. Uh, obviously, I know Jim and Tony um, and have, I know a lot of the guys in the crew because they were WCW guys. Um, the talent, I don't know so much. Yep. I know them from watching the show, but, uh, you know, I've known Cody since he was a kid, obviously. Yep. Uh, but, and, you know, I've met everybody else. Uh, you know, Jericho, of course, I've known forever. Never met Moxley uh, ever. Uh, met MJF at a couple of the star casts. He's, He's hysterical. Awesome. He's he, fucking it's awesome. just an amazing talent. Um, but for the most part, I don't know, I don't know the talent. Uh, but that would quickly change. But, yeah, why not? If they, if they ask, sure. But um, I doubt that's going to happen. I mean, look at this. Does this look, <laughs> does this look like the face that's going to sell magazine covers? I'm a really good uh, VO guy, you know? Got a yeah. face for radio, as we used to say. <laughs> <laughs> I want to um, just go. I want to wind back the clock a little bit. And uh, you joined TNA Wrestling for a stint. Uh, what were your hopes for TNA, and why didn't the working relationship last? Uh, TNA was in Nashville, Tennessee. Yep. Uh, which is about a three-hour drive from Atlanta. Uh, it's also one time zone away, so I could do those weekly pay-per-views in Nashville. Um, leave the office about 3.30, get to Nashville, Nashville time about 5.30. Uh, not a whole lot of prep work. It's doing uh, stand-up backstage interviews with talent that knew what they were doing. So there wasn't an awful lot of prep work to do. So that was easy. Um, they didn't pay me a lot of money, so I worked cheap. Again, I didn't work for free, obviously. Uh, I never offered, and they didn't suggest it. but Again, they, they had me, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll always be there. I'll be professional. They'll know that they'll get what they want out of me. Um, it's a live show, so I'm not afraid of live television. Um, and they could get me for, you know, a lot less money than they would be paying anybody else. So that, but when, when they moved the whole thing to Orlando, well, that's like a, a nine-hour drive. 
uh, and that's, I'm still trying to work, you know? And so I just said, you know, Hey, good luck. I did, I did a couple of pay-per-views when they switched to monthly pay-per-views. I did those. And I just said, you know, I can't, I can't do the, I can't do this. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a real job. I've, I can't, and they understood. They brought me back, <coughs> pardon me, in 2008 or 2009 for a pay-per-view that they did from South Carolina. Uh, I can't remember what happened. Some, whoever they had doing backstage, maybe Jeremy was, <coughs> was doing something live in Orlando. So he couldn't be in two places at once, obviously. So they said, would you do it? I said, of course. Ran over there. Again, what do we owe you? Oh, you don't owe me anything. It'll just be fun to see everybody. So I ran over there and did that show. But that was it. That was the last TNA. Uh, that was, I think, 2008, 2009. Um, so it was 2003, 4, 5, long break, one show, and that's it. But it was a, a fun time. It was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, right. No, uh, what are your sort of the current, um, this is sort of just staying on TNA topic. What are your current sort of uh, thought on the, on what TNA is doing in 2020? Uh, sort of Tessa being, uh, leading the charge. I know it's an interesting sort of, uh, an interesting move to make having a woman uh, become your world champion, and especially going over someone like Sammy Callahan. Um, I know it's caused a division yeah. in, in the wrestling industry, but on the topic of TNA, I just kind of wanted to grab your thoughts on that whole thing. Well, there you know, the pandemic has changed how everybody approaches television. Yeah. TNA and AEW have both flourished in that environment, while I think the WWF has sort of flailed in that environment. WWE has yep. flailed in that environment. But for Tessa, you know, she's such a talented uh, worker. Uh, to me, it's not even a close call. Uh, if somebody said you can have – Charlotte Flair or Tessa Blanchard, I'd take Tessa Blanchard all day, every day, and never think twice about it um, as somebody to build uh, the female division around. What they're doing with Tessa, keeping her as the world champion, it's interesting. Uh, it, it gets people talking. It gets people inside the business talking, and that's really all you want. Um, the, there, there is such a thing as bad publicity, but when it comes to this, there's no such thing as bad publicity. If they're talking about you um, and not laughing at you, you're doing something something right. And, and I think what they're doing with Tessa is fine. Again, I'm a huge fan. I got a lot of respect for her, um, and I like what they're doing. So we're going to get a couple more questions here before we um, wrap things up and then do a five-second frenzy with Carl. Um, I wanted to ask about your uh, – your thoughts on Tony Schiavone's uh, return to the wrestling industry and his run so far in AEW returning as a fantastic hustle. has, hasn't missed a step. Hasn't missed a beat. Uh, I get asked a lot about who's on the, you know, the Mount Rushmore of wrestling announcers. Who's your favorite announcers and all this. Um, my top announcers have really never varied from Lance Russell in Memphis, uh, Joey Styles in ECW uh, Jim Ross in Mid-South, UWF, WCW, WWE, and AEW, and Tony Schiavone in the same, yeah. except Mid-South. Uh, those four are just so head and shoulders above everybody else. Uh, it's not even close for me. And it's fun to see 
you know, Lance has, has left us, you know, rest in peace. Joey's not doing anything in wrestling anymore. But to have two of my top four favorite announcers of all time uh, sharing the booth or the table, as it were, on a weekly basis, that's just heaven for me. Um, I, I'm enjoying their work and I'm enjoying that company. It's an awesome team, man. Uh, JR and Tony together every week on Dynamite. Um, Excalibur is pretty good as well. I think he fills the gaps in. Uh, yeah. I, don't think, I don't think you're a very big fan of him as well. I agree that, uh, you know, Excalibur is a work in progress. He's not bad. And he certainly can be molded. And he's with two of the best of all time. So you know, let's check back in with Excalibur in a couple of years. And he might be up there um, in the current announce, uh, announce crew. You got somebody like Mauro Nalo, uh, who's also an incredible play-by-play uh, oh, awesome, play person announcer. Kevin Kelly is still hasn't missed a step, and he's been around for a long, long time. Uh, there are so many good ones out there now uh, that it's it's in good hands. This business is going to go on, you know, hopefully for you know hundreds and hundreds of years. And there are people now that are ready to step in and fill the shoes. Uh, in the WWE, in TNA, and in uh, AEW. I feel like there's a lot more promotions now, especially even like NXT, for example, that are having a lot more stronger announced teams. Like uh, for years, we've had to deal with listening to someone like, I mean, as good as he is at his job, like someone like Michael Cole, his voice, you know, after about, God, how, how many years has it been? Like forever. Too, too many. Voice. Uh, I have to say with Michael Cole, though, like when, when I would listen to him in 1999-2000, the passion from him was insurmountable, yeah. but the passion that was there back then in his announcing, I, it disappeared you know, later on, and it would get to a point where I would listen to him and Corey Graves, and I just can't stand listening to those two talk. I can tell you this, with, and I don't know Michael Cole, I've never met him, uh, I, I, I don't know if he's a nice guy or a jerk or whatever, but I know I don't like his work as an announcer. And that's because he doesn't make me believe he's calling a sport. Yeah. He makes me believe he is narrating a television show. Yes. That's two different things. If you are calling a football game, you know, there are going to be times when a game is terrible and you've got to get people built back up into the game and get their interest back into what they're seeing or they'll change the channel. Uh, Michael doesn't have that ability. He, you know, he calls what he sees in front of him and that's it. But the thing is, I know that's what Vince McMahon wants. That's what Kevin Dunn wants. Uh, so Michael might be the greatest announcer of all time. We just haven't seen him in his element because he's doing what he's told, which is to narrate a television show rather than call wrestling matches. It just sounds I just, very robotic. I just don't believe. I just don't believe. I just don't believe when I hear him. I don't believe like that. He's making it feel like it's real. What's taping, taking place is real. When I hear Jim Ross screaming because mankind's come off the cage or yeah. things like that, Jim Ross made me feel like it was real. Tony Schiavone made me feel like it was real. Yeah. Michael Cole back in '99, yes, but now, like years later, I don't feel like he's invested so much that it makes me as a fan think oh wow this guy makes it feel like it's real flag, flag the tape here when we're done go find youtube assuming you guys it's it's cleared in australia but find or search youtube for uh eddie gilbert the russians and bill watts there's an angle that 
uh, Mid-South Sports did, I think it was 86, maybe 85, 86. Um, I won't bore you with the, the long story, but the bottom line is Jim Ross is the best announcer in the history of the business, period, because of the six minutes of that angle. So okay. just look for Eddie I'll Gilbert, the Russians, Bill Watts, 1986, and watch that breakdown and listen to Jim. Uh, and watch it maybe in silence, and then watch it with Jim's voiceover. And Michael Hayes is with him, who's also fantastic. <laughs> it, it makes so much difference. We'll check that out. Yeah, we'll definitely need to. Um, you got one last question here. Um, sure. Pretty, uh, pretty big one, actually. What do you hope fans uh, remember most about Scott Hudson? Nothing. Really? Zero. That wasn't my job. My job was to make them remember the guys in the ring and to make them buy Skittles, which I, I mean, God love, I, I don't eat candy. So Skittles, ugh, God, but, <laughs> but to make them buy Skittles, if they like Skittles to make them buy the pay-per-view and buy t-shirts and programs and to think that they're getting a good entertainment value for the money they invested in our company. Uh, if they remember my face, if they remember my name, fine, but I don't want them to. I want them to remember every guy that I talked about. I want them to remember uh, how good you know, this pay-per-view was or how good this episode of Nitro was. That's what I want them to remember. I don't want them to remember me. Fair enough. Well said, Scott. Well said. Um, before I get to this, there's a little segment I do to end the show called Five Second Frenzy, but um, <laughs> Jamie Kellner. I want yes. to, if you could say anything to Jamie Kellner, and you don't have to use sign language, <laughs> but if you could say anything to Jamie, what would you say? I hope you're happy with what you did. You destroyed lives. You destroyed careers. You destroyed a company. You destroyed fans, you destroyed viewers, all because of your bias against a certain group of people. The fact that you ended up unemployed and unemployable is just desserts for someone like you. However, I wish you had never existed and I wish you had never been born because I miss my friends and I miss my company and I miss doing what I love to do. But thank you for being the world's biggest fuck up at your job. <laughs> very, 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 very. That is owned. He just got owned. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> that made me feel I've been really rehearsing, good. I've been rehearsing that for 23 years. I'm glad we got it on 55 <laughs> Live. Thank you very much, Scott. Um, That's fucking awesome. So this is time for five second frenzy. It's a stupid game, but you have five seconds to answer each question. It's supposed to be just quick five. Boom, 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 boom. Got Are it. you ready, Scott? Let's go. Who's your favorite musical artist? Pink Floyd. Nice. Awesome. Just like my dad. Favorite TV show? Um, Arrested Development. Excellent. Interesting. Favorite film? Uh, the Usual Suspects. What's the favorite concert that you've ever been to? I saw Radiohead on the Great Lawn at Stone Mountain Park in Atlanta in, I think, 2001. That wow. one. Wow. Uh, favorite food? 
Oh, wow. Uh, any seafood. I'll leave it at that. Favorite alcoholic beverage? <laughs> All of them. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite female body part? Ah, <sighs> this sounds like I'm equivocating. I'm not the brain. Sexiest part. They can Fuck be gorgeous, hell. but dumb as a post. No, thanks. They gotta, I gotta be able to talk to them. See, Godfather said titties. Alan Funk said ass. Sure. Scott Hudson says the brain. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. And the last one here for five so, seconds. So between, between me and Charles and Alan, uh, we're going to come up with like the perfect woman. <laughs> oh, no, no. And also Big Sal. Big Sal uh, said the, uh, what did he say? He said it in an interesting way. He said it was like the, uh, what did he say? The, the skin. I can't remember. I can't remember what he said. <laughs> so I can't funny. remember what he said. It was so funny. Right? I'm going to have to listen to it and tell you tomorrow. Um, uh, you know, I think those three probably that equates to Tori Wilson. Um, she is the total package as far as I'm concerned. I've never spoke to her, but I hope to one day. Uh, and the last one here on five second frenzy, Scott is yes. favorite curse word. I used to say, God fucking damn it all the time, no matter what the, in church, at my, at my mother in traffic. So Amazing. it got to the point where I said it so much, it lost its effect. So I would say only because I never say it anymore because I said it so much. That was it. Amazing. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for being with us here tonight and today for you. Um, sure. And before we go, I just want to say people rattle off names like Lance Russell, Gordon Soley, Gorilla Monsoon, Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, I'm throwing Scott Hudson's name oh. into the fray. That's how I feel. One of the best of all Thanks. time. Thank you very much. That's an honor. That's humbling. Thank you. I'll take You're very it. welcome. And, and thank you once again for being a part of the podcast here with myself. No, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. And we're mm -hmm. on it too, Scott. And I want to thank everyone out there for listening and watching the podcast. I'm California. And of course, our special guest, Scott Hudson, thank you very much for watching. And we'll see you next, next week when, you know, we're talking to local Perth wrestling superstar, Davis Storm. Thank you very much.